Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better as better be fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 168th episode of the Nauticast titled Hands of Gold, an analysis of A Storm of Swords Tyrion 3, in which now that the super, supernatural threat to Westeros is complete, we now get a massive small council chapter. Super fitting, I think. As we're recording this, season three of Succession just ended on HBO, and this this uh, this chapter feels very much like an episode of Succession to me. Everyone... Everyone with their own political interest and their own schemes, but also just the personal dysfunction and rot at the heart of it all. I think, you know, following up Sam one from last week, from the last couple of weeks, is it was a real tall order, but I think George picked the perfect chapter for it. I think he picked the perfect chapter too. And I do need to catch up on succession. I've not watched any of season three yet. So is it or just as good, good as con head moments? I know you're, I know you're a con head. So there's some, there's some I, good Connor moments. in there. Uh, Connor's the best in succession, the best character of all time. Maybe not the best character of all time, but he's, he's an up excellent there. character. He's up there. As always, this episode is brought to you by our, not a small council, our hand of the King wolf man, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lester Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet the Other Rebelman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Gem that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king, Lady Zena of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Gracious High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., congratulations. Congratulations to the Browns, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Sin, Herald of Sharon, Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow, Rainbow Commander of the Ds and General Thems, and the Nauticast, Non-Binary, Not an Army. Haldiver, the way for T-Wild, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencilers, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity, the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, of the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Heron Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who Was Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Words of the South, and a patron of free-wheeling bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate, Lord Christopher 
from Arendelle, official Ice Master Deliverer, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his Ginger Sweet Love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the King's Ward, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Nons II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the Wince Winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Unrepentant, ship, and unrepentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, the Severed Head of a Targaryen Prince, Riding of the Council of Walls, and Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven and Defender of Dunatar Castle. Thank you to all of our Not a Small Counselors. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds of Air sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Dave, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, I was listening to discuss Willis Terrell on your recent Sansa episode, and it dawned on me that just as Marjorie and Loras have served as character foils for Cersei and Jaime, George seems to be teeing up Willis as a foil for Tyrion. How do you see this playing out in The Winds of Winter when it comes out next week? Do you think Willis and Tyrion will eventually cross paths? That's a really good question. What do you think, Jeff? Do you think Willis and Tyrion are being set up in that regard? And what do you think that might mean for the story? I think that's an excellent observation from Sir Dave that Willis is a foil for Tyrion because we have the kind of – the physical deformity, if you want to call it that. Tyrion's is uh, genetic, whereas Willis's was caused by the fall of the horse, as we're going to find out from this chapter from Storm Source Tyrion 3. But I do think that it is a – I think you could see the, the two of them meet at some point. George has said many, many times now that Willis Terrell will be very important to the Winds Winter and also to A Dream of Spring. So this guy's going to be around for a while. And I do think that at some point Tyrion will return to Westeros, likely in the company of Daenerys Targaryen. I do think the Tyrells are going to play some role, especially the surviving Tyrells after what happens with the Golden Company in the Winds Winter. Willis and Garland are two characters that I think are going to be among the surviving Tyrells. I think Willis Tyrell is likely, is likely going to be one of those survivors for the entire series. So I do think that there is would be an interesting dynamic if the two of them met. So yes, I do think that they are going to eventually cross paths. Do I see it playing out in the Winds of Winter? That I'm not sure about because I feel like a lot of Tyrion's story in Winds is going to occur in Essos alongside Daenerys Targaryen. And probably the last chapter that we have of Tyrion will likely be him setting sail from Essos to Westeros or potentially arriving in Dragonstone, although I think that is likely going to be Daenerys Targaryen's point of view chapter, since that makes the most thematic and story sense to me. But in the Dream of Spring, I think that is a definite possibility that we can have Tyrion and Willis inter- intersect at some point, and that would be a really fun dynamic to see how the two of them see mirror images of themselves and how they might like each other, or because Tyrion Lannister, being Tyrion Lannister that he is in later books, might end up hating each other. What do you think, sir? What do you think Willis and Tyrion are going to cross paths? And how is that going to look for you, to you? I could see it happening. I think the the Willis and Garland stuff, I think, that George has teased before, is likely to play out mostly through Sam's POV, because he's our eyes on the area. But if the Tyrell, I mean, the Tyrells are likely to be anti-Young Grift. They're likely to be anti-The Golden Company and that whole crew, because Mace Tyrell, I think, uh, as you've uh, talked about so well before, and we'll talk about a little bit during at the end of this episode, <laughs> is likely to go down to some of his own bannermen in the, in, as, as part of Young Griff's arrival in Westeros. So in that regard, the Tyrells and Daenerys might make natural allies, especially if, if Loras is indeed hanging out still on Dragonstone when Danny shows up. We've talked before about the possibility that Loras might join Daenerys, so there would be a potential diplomatic political connection there. And it's interesting to consider, because Willis, from what we know of Willis, is... Uh, 
happier than Tyrion. And mm. I'm sure some of that has to do with his own, you know, personal temperament. But it's also because, you know, Mace never disinherited him, even after Willis's injury, as far as we know. You know, Willis has always been seen as the, as the heir to Highgarden. And the Tyrell family dynamics just seem stronger and more cohesive <laughs> than with the Lannisters. So that might be... That might be what the most telling difference is between Willis and Tyrion if we ever get them in a room together, is Willis has always still felt part of the pack, and that Tyrion really never has. And what a kind of condemnation that is of the other members of, of Tyrion's family. And so maybe what we'll see with Willis is someone who keeps his family going and keeps their cause going, even as the more martial members of the family drop off the map, or in Marjorie's case, just more politically visible than he is. And in with the Lannisters case, you have Tyrion actively turning against his family. So I could see a scene where Dave compared it to Jamie and Loras, and Jamie has that great moment where he looks at Loras and goes, "Oh, you're me. You're a younger <laughs> version of me." And maybe Tyrion will have a moment like that where he looks at Willis and goes, "Here's who I could have been if they had loved me. If they, you know, if, if we'd ever gotten along with my family, this is the guy I would have been." I think there could be real pathos in that. Very bittersweet. Yeah, very bittersweet indeed. And that, of course, will be the tone of the whole ending, if George is to be believed. <laughs> so thank you so much today for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here in the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, merch, access to the Not A Slack, shout-out to the start and end of every episode, weekly mini-sodes that we record before each regular episode, and bonus apps like our upcoming special holiday episode that's going to be all about Theon in the Dance with Dragons. Yeah, I'm very excited for that episode because, of course, if we get to 950 total patrons, we'll start our analyses of the Wind's Winter Theon sample chapter that George released back in December 2011. So we were asked last week, or rather weeks ago, really, to keep a running tally of how close we are to achieving that goal. So as of the recording of this episode, we are at 907 total patrons, or 43 new patrons shy of releasing the first part of our analysis of the Theon the Wind's Winter sample chapter. So if you like what you hear on our regular episodes, enjoy all of our holiday bonus content, which everyone will be welcome to listen to, and want to hear us tackle the Theon Wins the Winter chapter, who wouldn't? Consider becoming a patron today at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion Lannister, he learned how powerless he was, even failing to break up with Shay. That's how powerless this dude had become. Let's find out where the true power of Westeros lies in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 3. Lord Tywin's chain of hands made a golden glitter against the deep wine velvet of his tunic. The lords Tyrell, Redwine, and Rowan gathered round him as he entered. He greeted each in turn, spoke a quiet word to Varys, kissed the high septon's ring in Cersei's cheek, clasped the hand of Grand Maester Pycelle, and seated himself in the king's place at the head of the long table between his daughter and his brother. Tyrion, in contrast, sits in Pycelle's old seat, as Pycelle stays as far away from Tyrion as he possibly can. Tyrion notes his much shortened facial neck and hair. Tyrion notes Pycelle's much shortened facial and neck hair and doesn't give a shit. Meanwhile, Mace Tyrell, Paxter Redwine, Mathis Rowan, and the High Septon scramble to find seats at the table. Tyrion thinks that, yeah, this game has kind of changed a bit and he doesn't know how to play it. To his face, though, the lords are courteous, with Mace Tyrell complimenting Tyrion on the chain of the Blackwater and how smart it was. But Tyrion can't respond with courtesy in his mind. Tell it to the people of the city, Tyrion thought bitterly. Tell it to the bloody singers with their songs of Renly's ghosts. 
Kevin Lannister, who, by the way, is a war criminal, is warm to Tyrion, telling his nephew that Lancel Lannister spoke highly of Nuncle Tyrion. In response, Tyrion thinks that, yeah, that motherfucker better speak highly of him, or he'll inform Kevin of what Lancel did with Cersei. Obligatory, but Tyrion is good. Not the last time we heard that. But he does ask after Lancel's health. Kevin responds that the prognosis is mixed at best. Lancel looks and seems better some days, but also worse on others. But Cersei is there every day, lifting his spirits and praying for him. Just the thought of that is hilarious. Tyrion wonders if Cersei is praying for Lancel to live or to die, and he thinks that she's probably hoping that Lancel carries the secret of their affair to his grave. But would she actually stoop to murdering the boy? Hmm, Tyrion's not sure. I am less, I am a little bit more confident than Tyrion is, but Cersei puts on the charm today with flirtations to Mace Tyrell, compliments to horror and slobber red wine, jokes with Mathis Rowan, and pious noises with the High Septon. With everyone accounted for, Lord Tyrell asks if they should begin the small council sesh with wedding talk. No, their father said, with the war. Faris. The eunuch smiled, a silken smile. Oh, I have such delicious tidings for you all, my lords. Yesterday at dawn, our brave Lord Randall caught Robert Glover outside of Duskendale and trapped him against the sea. Losses were heavy on both sides, but in the end, our loyal men prevailed. Sir Helmut Tallhart is reported dead with a thousand others. Robert Glover leads the survivors back towards Harrenhal in bloody disarray, little dreaming he will find valiant Sir Gregor and his stalwarts athwart his path. Gods be praised, said Paxter Redwine. A great victory for King Joffrey. What did Joffrey have to do with it, thought Tyrion. Littlefinger says that the North lost, but not Rob Stark. Mathis asks where Rob is, and Tywin says he's back at Riverrun. Sir Davin Lannister is regrouping the Westermen at Lannisport and planning to join Sir Forley Prester at the Golden Tooth for when Rob Stark heads north. They'll jointly march on Riverrun and besiege the castle while Rob is away. Mathis Rowan wants to know if Rob will actually go north, especially since the Ironborn are at Moat Caelan blocking his way. And Mace Terrell says that the boy must march north to reclaim his kingdom. That's what the greatest military mind of Westeros would do. That mind being Mace Terrell's, of course, not Stannis Baratheon's, weirdly. Tyrion had to bite his tongue at that. Rob Stark had won more battles in a year than the Lord of Highgarden had in 20 Tyrell's reputation rested on one indecisive victory over Robert Baratheon at Ashford, and a battle largely won by Lord Tarly's van before the main host had even arrived. The siege of Storm's End, where Mace Tyrell actually did hold the command, had dragged on a year to no result. And after the triumph was fought, the Lord of Highgarden had meekly dipped his banners to Eddard Stark. In other words, get wrecked, Flower Man. Littlefinger jests that he wants to chastise Rob for allowing Roost Bone to stable goats at Harrenhal. But Kevin Lannister changes the course of the conversation, telling everyone that Balin Greyjoy wrote to the Iron Throne proposing an alliance. Cersei thinks Balin shouldn't be proposing an alliance but offering fucking fealty. But Tywin says that Balin is claiming kingship through right of conquest. It's also best that they don't provoke Balin given that his longships could descend on the Westerlands and the Reach. Mathis then asks the terms of Balin's alliance, and Tywin reports that Balin just wants the North. Paxter's Redwines are like, sure, great, the North is just a wasteland, dude. And they get and they get all the Greyjoy swords and sails. Mace Trail says, ah, yes, he would do the same thing. They need to finish Stannis off first before they focus on the North or the Iron Islands. Tywin then abruptly changes the topic of conversation to Lysa Aaron. What should they do with her? Her husband was conspiring with Stannis before the war, after all. May says, uh, just let her be, maybe? And Paxter agrees. Besides, Lysa didn't do any treason, right? 
Tyrion stirred. She did throw me in a cell and put me on trial for my life, he pointed out with a certain amount of rancor. Nor has she returned to King's Landing to swear fealty to Joff as she was commanded. My lords, grant me the men and I will sort out Lysa, to Lysa Aaron. He could think of nothing he would enjoy more, perhaps except strangling Cersei. Tyrion is good. Sometimes he still dreamed of the eerie sky cells and woke drenched in cold sweat. Maesterell's smile was jovial, but behind it, Mace, but behind it, Tyrion sensed contempt. Perhaps it is best you leave the fighting to fighters, said the Lord of Highgarden. Better men have lost great armies in the mountains of the boon or shattered them against the bloody gate. Oh, we know your worth, my lord. No need to tempt fate. Tyrion starts to jump up to tell Mace to go fuck himself, but Tywin says that he has a job for Tyrion. Littlefinger will take care of the Eyrie with his... Uh, little finger. He's going to the Vale to sex Lysa, and he'll bring the Vale back into the Royal Fall without any bloodshed. Mathis Rowan asks if Lysa will have him. Littlefinger's like, yep, already had her high fives all around, bros, because I totally had sex one or two times in my entire life. Cersei remarks that sex is different than marriage. True, but Cersei points out that he will marry Lysa now that he now that he's the Lord of Harrenhal. Paxter and Mace look at each other, kind of shocked at this, realizing what Littlefinger has been doing all along, but Mathis says that might work. The High Septon drones on about how the gods will bless Littlefinger's noble venture if he can bring the veil back without blood. Paxter wonders how, how, given that Robert Aaron is the Lord of the Eyrie. But Littlefinger's all like, he'll be a great stepdad and bring Robert Aaron to heel. Tyrion studied the slender man with the pointed beard and irreverent gray-green eyes. Lord of Aaron, Lord of Harrenhal and empty honor, bugger that father. Even if he never sets foot in the castle, the title makes this match possible as he's known all along. We have no lack of foes, said Sir Kevin Lannister. If the Deary can be kept out of the war all to the good, I am a mind to see what Lord Peter can accomplish. Sir Kevin was his brother's vanguard and counsel, Tyrion knew from long experience. He never had a thought that Lord Tywin had not had first. It has all been settled beforehand, Tyrion concluded, and this discussion is no more than show. Tyrion realizes that everyone is just going to let Littlefinger shear them naked, so he asks the question on who is going to, you know, pay the crown's debts when Littlefinger is gone. Why, that would be a job for a Lannister, of course. Tyrion has a bad feeling about this, as Tywin says that Tyrion is suited to the task, is suited for the task to Kevin's agreement. Anyways, now that Tyrion's been named to the master of the coin position, when is Littlefinger leaving? Tomorrow, he says with a giant wink and probably using finger quotes. Mace asks if Littlefinger will be sad to miss Joff's wedding, but he's not going to be sad. Littlefinger probably makes a long motion to look at his watch and says, wow, he really needs to sail now rather than risk the autumn storms or something. He needs to get gone, guys. Everyone says bye to Littlefinger. Get the fuck out. Sorry, we have to see you again at the end of this book. Then Pax returns the conversation to the Greyjoys. They should make the alliance to attack Dragonstone. But Tywin has a different perspective. Lord Balin's longships are occupied for the nonce, Lord Tywin said politely, as are we. Greyjoy demands half the kingdom as the price of alliance, but what will he do to earn it? Fight the Starks? He is already doing that. Why should we pay for what he has given us for free? The best thing to do about our Lord of Pike is nothing in my view. In grand enough time, a better option may well present itself, one that does not require the king to give up half his kingdom. Tyrion watched his father closely. There's something he's not saying. He remembered those important letters Lord Tywin had been writing the night Tyrion had demanded Castle Rock. 
what was it he said? Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. He wondered who the better option was and what sort of price he was demanding. Yeah, what really is Tywin doing here? Truly, it's a mystery to us rereaders, right? Anyways, Kevin says that they should talk about the wedding and they talk about the details. But then Paiso brings up a raven he receives saying that 300 Dornishmen are coming to King's Landing and they'll arrive before the wedding. This... To put it simply, does not please Mace Terrell, who barks about Dornishmen, not asking his leave to progress into his lands. Tyrion recalls that the animosity came from the fact that Oberyn Martell had paralyzed Millis Terrell during a tilt. He thinks it's going to be hilarious what Tywin is going to say next. Prince Dorn comes at my son's invitation, Lord Tywin said calmly, not only to join in our celebration, but to claim his seat on the council, and that justice Robert denied him for the murder of his sister Elia and her children. Tyrion watched the faces of the lords Tyrell, Redwine, and Rowan, wondering if any of the three would be bold enough to say, but Lord Tywin, wasn't it you who presented the bodies to Robert all wrapped in Lannister cloaks? None of them did, but it was on their faces all the same. Redwine does not give a figgy thought, but Rowan looks fit to gag. Really interesting reactions there by all, especially Lord Mathis, but we'll get to all that at the end of this episode. Kevin says that everyone is going to be friends given that Marjorie is married to Joffrey and Marcel will be married to Tristane, right? Mace says it's his daughter's wedding, but Tywin says it's my grandson's wedding. They don't all have to quarrel over old forgotten shit, right? Oh, well, um, Mace doesn't mind Dorne Martell. He just needs to ask his leave to cross his lands. Fat fucking chance that happens, thinks Tyrion. But Tyrion, though, thinks it's going to be fine to house them in the dais during the wedding. Mace sort of grunts approval and Tywin says they need to move on. Next topic is the fruits of victory or treason to Stannis. How will they defy their ill-gotten game? Everyone has demands. Unfortunately, there are a lot of dead lords, lordlings, and knights that they can steal from. Oh, so fortunate that they can get to rob the dead. And then there were the traitors they could disinherit. Highgarden reaped the richest harvest. Tyrion eyed Mace Tyrell's broad belly and thought, he has a prodigious appetite, this one. Tyrell demanded the lands and castles of Lord Alistair Florent, his own bannerman, who'd had the singular ill judgment to back first Renly and then Stannis. Lord Tywin was pleased to oblige. Bright Waterkeep and all its lands and incomes were granted to Lord Tyrell's second son, Sir Garland, transforming him into a great lord in the blink of an eye. His little brother, of course, stood to inherit Highgarden itself. Oh, that's really interesting about the Florent lands. I wonder if Randall will have a thing to say about this, especially since he, along with Mathis Rowan, Lady Oakhart, and Leighton Hightower, get lesser tracts of land. For his part, Redwine only wants a remission of taxes against Arbord Gold. Granted, he proposed the toast, but Cersei only wants swords, not toasts. They need to fight usurpers. Faris thinks that the usurpers will be dead soon, and then Kevin changes the conversation. And then Kevin changes the conversation to talk about how they found some of the crystals from the High Septon, who was murdered during the riot back in A Clash of Kings. The new High Septon pontificates about how the father will judge the people who stole his crown. Tywin agrees and says a new crown must be made. Anyways, what are the reports far as? The eunuch drew a parchment from his sleeve. A kraken has been seen off the fingers, he googled. Not a Greyjoy, mind you, a true kraken. It attacked an whaler and pulled it under. There is fighting on the stepstones, and a new war between Tyrosh and Lys seems likely, but hope to win Mirror as an ally. Sailors from the Black Sea report that a three-headed dragon has hatched in the Karth, and it's a wonder of that city. Tywin interrupts to say he doesn't care about dragons or krakens. He just wants to know if Tyrek Lannister has been found. Sadly, so sadly, the boy has totally vanished. Kevin brings up that some gold cloaks have returned to the barracks, and Adam Marbrand wants to know what to do with him. 
Cersei says, execute them. Varus says, send them to the Night's Watch. There are reports of wildlings stirring. But Tywin says no to those options. He's going to break their knees with hammers as a warning to those who might think about deserting again. Tyrion, though, remembers his time on the wall and how Jir was afraid. Maybe they break a few knees and send the rest to the wall. If the wall falls, that's going to be totally bad, right, Dad? The wildlings will flood the north, his father finished, and the Starks and Greyjoys will have another enemy to contend with. They no longer wish to be subject to the Iron Throne, it would seem. So by what right do they look to the Iron Throne for aid? King Rob and King Balin both claim the north. Let them defend it if they can. And if not, this Mance Raider might prove a useful ally. Lord Tywin looked to his brother. Is there more? Kevin says, no, the session is at an end, but Tywin wants words with his children and Kevin. So the spineless small council somehow walks its way out of the chambers and Kevin closes the door behind them. Now alone, Tyrion asks who suggested him for the position of Master of Coin. Why Littlefinger, of course? Tyrion thinks correctly that this is a trap. But Littlefinger sold out Ned Stark, Cersei points out. Exactly. That motherfucker will sell out anyone. And he makes gold up out of thin air and lies all the time. Tyrion and Cersei bicker about who the tr liar truly is, but Tywin slams his hand on the table, all abusive dad-like, and says, Enough. Kevin remarks that Littlefinger's in the veil. Kevin remarks that Littlefinger in the veil is a better match for Lysa, and thus the Lannisters than any of the Vale Lords angling for the role. Besides that, Littlefinger brought word of the Tyrell plot to send Sansa to Highgarden to marry Willis Tyrell. Incredulous, Tyrion asks how Littlefinger found about that plot instead of Varys. Cersei goes all, but Sansa is my hostage. Tywin, though, points out that if the Tyrells asked to take Sansa to Highgarden, Cersei would have to allow it as the Tyrells would take offense to that. Um, who gives a shit, Cersei asks. Bloody fool, thought Tyrion. Sweet sister, he explained patiently. Offend Tyrell, and you offend Redwine, Tarly, Rowan, and Hightower as well. And perhaps start them wondering whether Rob Stark might not be a more accommodating of their desires. I will not have the Rose and Direwolf in bed together, declared Lord Tywin. We must forestall him. How? asked Cersei. By marriage, yours to begin with. Stunned into silence for a brief moment, Cersei gets angry and declares that she won't marry again. Kevin says, um, well, you're young and you might want the company of a dude and the incest talk would cease if Cersei was married. Tywin concurs, saying that this would stop Stannis' very true slander that Cersei is incestuous. That's more like libel as opposed to slander. Anyways, Cersei is to have a husband to father more children. No thanks, dad. Cersei has three kids already and she's a queen, not a broodmare. You are my daughter and will do as I command. She stood. I will not sit there and listen to this. You will, if you wish to have any voice in the choice of your next husband, Lord Tywin said calmly. Cersei hesitates and sits down, and Tywin repeats that when Cersei marries and breeds, it'll make Stannis a liar. Anyways, Cersei probably won't marry Mace Tyrell, Paxter Redwine, or Dorne Martell, as they're old. But maybe she could marry Balin Greyjoy after his elderly wife dies. Nope. Tyrion thinks it'll be hilarious for Cersei to go to Pike because he is obviously good. Tywin rattles off some more ideas, Oberyn Martell perhaps, but then Mace wouldn't like that, so maybe one of Mace's sons or one of the Redwine twins, Theon Greyjoy, or maybe even Quentin Martell. But Tywin has the best of ideas, he always does, in his own fucking mind. The eldest son of Mace Tyrell. Willis Tyrell. Tyrion was taking a wicked pleasure in Cersei's helpless fury. That would be the cripple, he said. Their father chilled him with a look. Willis is heir to Highgarden, and by all reports, a mild and courtly young man fond of reading books and looking at the stars. He has a passion for breeding animals as well, and owns the finest hounds, hawks, and horses in the Seven Kingdoms. 
A perfect match, mused Tyrion. Cersei also has a passion for breeding. He pitied poor Willis Tyrell and did not know whether he wanted to laugh at his sister or weep for her. Anyways, that is Tywin's choice, but Cersei can have a quote-unquote voice of the batter. What's her take? Well, she's not sure whether to marry the boomer Greyjoy or the dog boy. She's going to need time to consider. Cersei asks for leave to go and Tyrion thinks, um... You're the queen. You don't have to ask those kinds of questions anymore. But Tywin dismisses her all the same. So Cersei heads off enraged as Tyrion muses that Cersei would be angry but would do what she was told. She did with Robert back in the day anyways. The problem was, of course, Jamie. He would probably murder the fuck out of Willis if Cersei buried him. But now Tywin turns to Tyrion. You see, Tywin thinks that Tyrion's love of sex workers is a weakness. But maybe, maybe that's Tywin's fault. Maybe. Sure. Tyrion needs to wed too. Tyrion laughs, snarls, and Tywin thinks, asks if he thinks it's funny. Yeah, kinda. Tyrion would be an ugly bridegroom, but he thinks it would be pleasant to have lands and a castle away from Cersei and Tywin. The thing is, is that Shay would be upset about this whole marriage of Tyrion's idea, even if she's cool with being Tyrion's whore. That was scarcely a point to sway his father, however. So Tyrion squirmed higher in his seat and said, You mean to wed me to Sansa Stark, but won't the Tyrells take the matches in a front if they have designs on the girl? No, because the Tyrells won't bring up the Sansa Willis match until after Joffrey's wedding. That's why Sansa and Tyrion are getting married first. Besides, the match between Cersei and Willis will soothe any lingering issues, which is a big uh uh-huh, sure moment. Tyrion rubbed the brawl stub of his nose. The scar, tish, the scar tissue itched abominably. The scar tissue itched abominably sometimes. His grace, the royal pustule, has made Sansa's life a misery since the day her father died, and now that she is finally rid of Joffrey, you propose to marry her to me. That seems singularly cruel, even for you, father. Why do you plan to mistreat her? His father said a more curious than concern. The girl's happiness is not my purpose, nor should it be yours. Our alliances in the south may be as solid as Castle Rock, but there remains the north to win, and the key to the north is Sansa Stark. Tyrion correctly objects that Sansa is a child, but Tywin's like, who the fuck cares? It's just child rape. She's had her first period. All Tyrion needs to do is take your maidenhead and then wait until she's older to better again. Having just reread the Ramsay Jane scenes from A Dance with Dragons, I am pretty fucking offended by this and disgusted, but you know, this is Tywin Lannister we're talking about. What moral bonds does this man actually have? Anyways, Tyrion thinks all he really wants is Shay, and Sansa is just a girl. So Tyrion suggests sending her back to Riverrun. Maybe Rob puts her down maybe Rob puts down his sword if that occurs. Tywin thinks no, because then Sansa will marry a Riverlander or a Northman. Sansa must marry a Lannister quickly. Kevin says that Tyrion could claim Winterfell in Sansa's name, and Tywin muses aloud whether one of Kevin's sons could marry Sansa. Maybe Lancel? No, Lancel's not strong enough yet and may never be. His twins might serve, but they are captives in Riverrun. Tyrion let them have their byplay. It was all for his benefit, he knew. Sansa Stark, he mused. Soft-spoken, sweet-smelling Sansa who loves silk, songs, chivalry, and tall, gallant knights with handsome faces. He felt as though he was back on the bridge of boats, the deck shifting beneath his feet. Tywin launches into a history of his schemes to marry Tyrion. He asked to marry Tyrion to Lysa, but was rejected. His suggestion to Dorne was taken as an insult. Bronze, Jan, Royce, and Leighton Tower also rejected Tyrion. Tywin even tried to wed Tyrion to the Florent girl that Robert deflowered on Stannis' wedding night. Again, on Stannis' wedding bed. But that was rejected too. If Tyrion's not going to have Sansa, Tywin will find a match for Tyrion. Maybe Lady Tonda's daughter, Lollys? 
Tyrion gave a shudder of dismay. I'd sooner cut off and feed her to the goats. Then open your eyes. The Stark girl is young, nubile, tractable of the highest birth and still made. She is not uncomely. Why would you hesitate? Why, indeed? A quirk of mine. Strange to say, I prefer a wife who wants me in her bed. Tywin chides Tyrion that his whores don't want him in their bed. Tyrion is disappointing Tywin greatly. He thought this idea would please him. Uh, oh, so Tywin is interested in Tyrion's pleasure? Yeah, okay. But the problem is that the North is not uncontested. There are these Greyjoys to deal with, after all. Why not marry Tyrion to Asha Greyjoy? Well, because Balin Greyjoy is only interested in plunder and conquest, so they will not be popular. But if Tyrion and Sansa return to the North with the grandson of Eddard Starks, everyone will rise for them. Tyrion can get a chat on Sansa, right? Tyrion angrily says that he should be fine as he plants the seeds wherever. And the gutters and the ditches finish Lord Tywin, and in common ground where only bastard weeds take root. It is past time you kept your own garden. Tywin rose to his feet. You shall never have Castle Rock, I promise you. But wed Sansa Stark, and it is just possible that you might win Winterfell. Tyrion Lannister, Lord Protector Winterfell. The prospect gave him a queer chill. Very good, father, he said slowly, but there is a big, ugly brooch in your rushes. Rob Stark is as capable as I am, presumably, and sworn to marry one of those fertile phrase. And once the young wolf sires litter, any pups that Sansa births are heirs to nothing. But Tywin isn't concerned. You see, he has a little secret he hasn't told anyone yet. Rob Stark has married Jane Westerling. The news stuns Tyrion as he thinks that Rob left the phrase for Gowan Westerling's daughter. Kevon confirms the report that it's Jane and adds some world-building details that Gowan Westerling married a low-born woman named Sibel Spicer. Her grandfather was a traitor and her grandmother was a Meiji from the East. But that bloodline is so impure and so not noble like the noble Lannisters. Having married a whore once, Tyrion could not entirely share his uncle's horror at the thought of wedding a girl whose great-grandfather sold clothes. Even so, a sweet child, Sir Kevin had said, but many a poison was sweet as well. The Westerlings were old blood, but they had more pride than power. It would not surprise him to learn that Lady Sibel had, bought, had brought more wealth to the marriage than her highborn husband. The Westerling mines had failed years ago. Their best lands had been sold off or lost, and the crag was more ruined than stronghold. A romantic ruin, though, jutting up so brave above the sea. I am surprised, Tyrion had to confess. I, I, I thought Rob Stark had better sense. Tywin says that Rob is 16, and Kevon says that Rob chose Jane's honor over his own. Tyrion thinks maybe just, you know, leave her as a single mom with a bastard, Rob Stark? The Westlings were going to lose everything. Their lives, their lands, their castle. Tywin thinks that Jean is her mother's daughter and Rob his father's son, and this causes Tyrion's hackles to rise. Tywin should have been fucking enraged by this betrayal, but he wasn't. Back in the day, Tywin had gone to do some mass murder on the Reigns in Tarbex, and afterwards a song called The Reigns of Castamere was written. When Lord Farman, one of Tywin's vassals, had been a pain in his father's ass, Tywin sent a singer to Faircastle to sing the song, The Reigns of Castamere, and Lord Farman desisted. The ruined castles of the Reigns in Tarbex served as further evidence of the power of Castle Rock and what awaited those who defied the Lannisters. Tyrion asks aloud why the Westlings hadn't take the taken the meaning of Castamere correctly. Well, according to Tywin, they were well aware of Castamere, which... foreshadowing? But Tyrion has a final question. Could the Westerlings and Spicers be such great fools as to believe the wolf can defeat the lion? Every once in a very long while, Lord Tywin Lannister would actually threaten to smile. He never did, but the threat alone was terrible to behold. 
The greatest fools are oft times more clever than the men who laugh at them, he said. And then you will marry Sansa Stark Tyrion. And soon. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords Tyrion 3. I know it could seem like a lesser chapter after the one we just covered, which is Samuel 1, but man, I know I said this back, I think, in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 7, but I love, love a good small council scene. And this entire chapter is just a small council scene, so I am so down. What did you think of this chapter, sir? This chapter makes me think of the opening scene of Willy Wonka, where all the kids are dancing around in the candy, sto- in the candy store eating the treats and singing about how awesome Willy Wonka is, and then it cuts to the protagonist, Charlie, standing alone outside with his nose pressed up against the window, desperately watching what he can't have. And that's Tyrion in this chapter. No longer a player, just watching the Game of Thrones from the outside. Structurally, Tyrion III works a lot like Tyrion's chapters in Clash of Kings, showing us the nitty-gritty of politicians at work, covering an incredible amount of ground in terms of plot. This is the flip side to Catelyn II earlier in this book, which I described as a narrative hub through which so many different storylines pass. Same goes for Tyrion III. But while Catelyn II was about the downfall of the Starks and Tullys, this chapter is about the triumph of the Lannisters and the Tyrells as they cement their control of Westeros. And much like A Storm of Swords, Catelyn II, the main character there was Robb Stark and not Catelyn Stark, the point of view. Here in Tyrion Three, the chapter's main character is Tywin Lannister and not Tyrion. The difference here is that Catelyn's powerlessness was rooted in her action in freeing Jaime Lannister and committing some, as I said, light treason. In contrast, Tyrion has done everything his father has wanted, and yet he too was powerless in this chapter because... To paraphrase the great J.R.R. Tolkien, there is but one lord of the realm, only one who can bend the realm to his will, and he does not share power. The powerlessness of Tyrion Lannister, Cersei Lannister, and really the rest of the small counselors is the point of the chapter. Read a certain way, this is Tywin Lannister thrilling in the fact that everyone has to cringe and play the part of lick spilled at him. They know who butters their bread, and land and money is at stake. The problem is that his two children are really not getting their bread buttered. They're being treated like children of a disappointed dad who is telling them what their punishment, or in Tywin's idea, reward will be after all the stuff that they have done. But again, not a reward. It's a punishment. A very realistic and recognizable parent-child dynamic, similar to the Catelyn Rob dynamic, which I think is a lot healthier, but also very, very human, very recognizable stuff. And to compare this to another Catelyn chapter, her first one in Clash of Kings started with a close-up of Rob's crown as he adjusted it nervously on his head. This chapter starts with a close-up of the hand chain around Tywin's neck. The glitter of gold, as George describes it, the Lannister's favorite color, representing economic wealth as well as political power, and those two are often the same thing in this chapter. But the chain is first and foremost a symbol of Tywin's return to power, which has gone hand in hand, so to speak, with Tyrion's fall. Now it's Tywin greeting the small counselors one by one with all the smoothness of a practiced politician. He's also glad-handing the Lords of the Reach, his fellow winners of the Battle of Blackwater, according to the narrative that cuts Tyrion out. Tywin claims the king's place at the head of the table, and I love that no one even bothers to ask where Joffrey is, not even, like, formally. It's just, it's very clear who's in charge here. (laughs) Tyrion sits at the foot of the table, all the better to stare down his dad. They're like literal mirror images, two halves of a whole. I'm you writ small, as Tyrion will say at the end of the book. George describes each of the Lords of the Reach in turn. 
We haven't actually spent much time with Mace Terrell yet, nor Paxter Redwine and Mathis Rowan. They're strangers to Tyrion as much as to us. New players, Hizzy thinks. The game board has been shuffled around, made hilariously literal in the scramble for chairs when everyone comes into the room. And that's politics for you, just a never-ending game of musical chairs. And there's no room for Tyrion anymore. He's like a puppet who has learned to see the strings, but still has to dance. The wound he took in service of the Lannister cause only makes everyone more uncomfortable to look at him. Mace and Paxter act all friendly, but as with the Tyrell women that Sansa meets, the friendliness is a facade, with thorns underneath. Same goes for Cersei, papering over her own shameful conduct in Clash of Kings by, quote, making pious noises, being the very picture of noble femininity. Their victory would have been unthinkable without Tyrion's chain and other elements of his strategy, but it's the hand chain that counts here, and Tywin took it away from him. As Tyrion thinks bitterly, Renly's ghost is getting more credit than he is. People prefer a literal phantom, a shadow on a wall, to a disfigured dwarf. Lest we think this was all out of Tyrion's control, though, George lingers on his description of Maester Pycelle, looking so much older and less impressive without his beard. Tyrion stares at him without remorse. Now, Pycelle is venal and corrupt, of course. He has betrayed his oaths countless times, so it's not like I really feel sorry for him. But Tyrion never took into account what would happen when his father returned to King's Landing. He made the classic political mistake of assuming he would always have the same level of authority. At Tyrion's trial later in the book, Pycelle and others mix lies with truth to bring Tyrion down. Tyrion is a victim of slander, but he is so certain that he can't be loved that he never bothered to try and take control of the narrative himself. He made enemies, and now those enemies no longer have to fear him. As Machiavelli would tell him, if you're going to make a move against someone, be sure to do it in such a way as to remove their ability to strike back. That's a bingo for me because, and that is Tyrion's fault here in his thinking. He can't mercilessly slaughter the Reigns and Tarbucks like Tywin or make them into friends like Robert did at the end of Robert's Rebellion and really throughout Robert's Rebellion. He occupies this kind of weird middle political ground and in fact ends up looking cruel and weak, even if it is Pycelle that he looks like this the most to. On that note, Pycelle was and remains the weakest member of the small council. And as you pointed out in The Clash of Kings, he was the only real Lannister loyalist at the small council, which is kind of saying something, because sitting in session are the real dangers to Lannister power and the realm, both here in Storm of Swords and then back in The Clash of Kings, Varys and Littlefinger. Tyrion came to rely too much on Varys as he admitted in A Clash of Kings, and Littlefinger became too indispensable to Tywin by securing the Tyrell alliance. And yet these individuals couldn't be touched by Tyrion. He took out the only true Lannister loyalist, crony really, on the small council. As a result, Tyrion is utterly isolated in the small council with people who are indifferent at best to Tyrion or who utterly loathe him at worst. Tyrion thought that to himself in Clash of Kings. He was like, yeah, I don't think Varys and Littlefinger are actually my friends, though. They're just more subtle and just better at this than Pycelle. Right. So how much good am I really doing? And now that's all coming home to roost. So Cersei wants to start with the wedding arrangements. Tywin insists on starting with the war. But ironically, uh, his war strategy is actually all about wedding arrangements, namely the Red Wedding. And I think that's sneaky work by George there saying, no, actually, this is still wedding arrangements we're doing. You just don't see it yet. He describes Varus's smile as silky, and his words are too, obsequious and flattering as ever. He delivers his report on the Battle of Duskendale. And we first saw the setup for this calamity back in Clash of Kings, when Roos Bolton sent Robert Glover and Helmut Tallhart to Duskendale, supposedly on Rob's orders. 
Then Tywin told us, in an earlier Tyrion chapter in this book, that he'd sent Randall Tarly and Gregor Clegane out to deal with those Northmen. And as we said in our episode on that chapter, this demonstrates that Tywin and Roose are already working together. Between that and the Ruby Ford, as we'll, say in a, as we'll see in a later Catalan chapter, Roose ensures that he and the Freys will have Rob well outnumbered for the Red Wedding. And now we see how this event, the Battle of Duskendale, is interpreted within the political community, when the endgame can't actually be discussed out loud yet. Paxter Redwine chimes in to claim it as a grand victory for King Joffrey. Tyrion thinks that Joffrey had nothing to do with it, which is true, but really it's irrelevant. What matters in political terms is the narrative being set up, one of righteous victory for the legitimate monarch, rather than what it is, a series of one-sided ambushes arranged via espionage. But that doesn't make us feel good, so we're going to call it a glorious God's praised victory for King Joffrey. Littlefinger and Mathis Rowan draw our attention to Rob himself, who didn't take part in the battle any more than Joffrey did. Tywin delivers the news that Rob is back in River Run. Mace Tyrell declares that he'll next move north, because that's what I would do. Tyrion is infuriated by that, and I get why. Mace's smug arrogance is really obnoxious considering how thin his military resume actually is. He just doesn't know what he's talking about and doesn't seem to care. Then again, Mace isn't exactly outlining a, you know, complex, subtle military strategy here. He's just acknowledging an obvious political reality. There is no king without a kingdom. Catelyn said the same thing to Rob. You have to go home now and deal with the Ironborn. That's priority one. So I think Tyrion's spite here has more to do with how he's being treated. He's the one whose reputation is being dismissed along with Rob's, and he resents Mace for that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Mace is basically stealing glory, ultimately. And I think Joffrey is kind of doing the same thing. And we'll talk about the historical context of that here in a moment. And I think, you know, Mace just says that thing, as you're saying, is stating the obvious thing and making it seem so profound. But you're right that this is also what Catelyn told Rob to do because there's really no other option at this point. But there's also something else here as we're opening to the small council. This small council scene reminds me of Ned occupying the role of Hand of the King for the first time in the Game of Thrones when he thinks he remembered what Robert had told him in the crypts below Winterfell. I am surrounded by flatters and fools, the king had insisted. Ned looked down the council table and wondered which were the flatters and which were the fools. He thought he knew. Ned... Thinking that he knew is interesting, turns out he was likely wrong, as one of the suspected fools, Littlefinger, turned out to be one of the flatterers. Here, though, it's kind of harder to distinguish the fools and the flatterers. Certainly, Pycelle and the High Septon remain lickspittles and fools, but the others? Littlefinger and Varys still do flattery, but what about the Reach Lords? What about Mace Tyrell? Now, this is a point where I think Mace is somewhat aware of his reputation and plays to type. I think that Mace is aware of how Tyrion feels that he's been slighted for his conduct during the Battle of the Blackwater. So Redwine talks about the great victory for Joffrey, which really salts Tyrion's festering wound over his basic unacknowledgement about his own conduct on the Blackwater. And Mace then jumps in talking about what the great military mind of his would think and do in this situation. I, I don't think this is quite the choreographed dance that Tyrion is going to observe later about his father and uncle, but I do think there is some pre-planning at work here too. Tyrion correctly points out, in his mind, of course, that Maestrel has a rather diffident military record, having only, quote-unquote, won the Battle of Ashford because Randall Tarly won the battle way ahead of him with the vanguard, and then Maestrel besieged Storm's End to no effect until Ned Stark come. This is going to be a little bit controversial, and it is a point that I brought up in A Clash of Kings, but I want to talk for a moment about why Mace Tyrell's bare minimum effort during Robert's Rebellion was smart politically. Had Mace Tyrell ruthlessly pressed his attack on Robert Baratheon and pursued him, or had taken Storm's end, it's, I think it's unlikely at best that he would have been forgiven by Robert. 
Considering that Mace also had 80 to 100,000 soldiers at Storm's End, he could have taken the castle by force. Instead, Mace, Mace did his Mace thing. He hung out, and by hanging out and not doing much, he made it so that he would win out if Ares won, or not lose so hard if Robert won. As it turned out, Mace actually didn't pay any consequences for supporting Aerys Targaryen during Robert's Rebellion, and yet has the ability to parlay his reputation, and yet, and thus has the ability to parlay his reputation, though there are potential consequences yet to be seen likely in later later volumes of A Song of Ice and Fire. I totally agree, and while I don't think Mace is quite as smart as his mom, I also don't think he's as buffoonish as his reputation suggests. I think he, Tyrells wouldn't be in his politically strong position if that were really the case. And I think, yeah, he has he has a cunning... That's not really about how best to use his men in combat. It's more, as you were saying, how best not to use them, how to preserve his assets. I think he's he's a political mind first and a military mind way, 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 way down on the list. But that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's why it's good to have guys like Randall Tarley around, at least for the moment. But I had mentioned uh, the Ironborn in terms of them being uh, Rob's primary foes at this point. And speaking of the Ironborn, we return here to a thread left dangling in Clash of Kings, which is Balin Greyjoy's offer of an alliance to the Lannisters. Cersei being Cersei, just wants everyone to bend the knee to her and her children, now if not sooner. Tywin is a cooler head, at least in terms of his public performance in council. He points out that the Ironborn currently have a strong military position in the north that they have to take seriously. And I love that the Lords of the Reach couldn't give less of a shit about what (laughs) happens to the north. The reader has been all caught up in the drama over Winterfell, because that's where we started the story, and that's where a lot of the core characters are from. And we saw the Ironborn invasion firsthand, so we're ready for that to get some resolution. But from Paxter Redwine's perspective, the North is just like a barren wasteland. It's basically how many people south of the Wall view the Wildlings. And honestly, I get his perspective. The North is comparatively poor, save the Manderleys, and even they don't pose much of a competitive threat to the Reach. The North is geographically distant, it's culturally and ethnically distinct, so who needs them? Paxter is kind of just accidentally making the case for Northern independence here, (laughs) albeit in the terms of the Greyjoy occupation. Plus, the Ironborn have ships, and Paxter's all about ships. Couldn't we use the Ironborn longships to assault Dragonstone, finish off Stannis? Tywin points out, though, that Balin is already fighting the Northmen for them, so why give him anything? This is a sensible point, and shows how foolish Balin's strategy was. He really should have sent this letter before invading the North. But as Tyrion realizes, there is a deeper layer here that Tywin is keeping hidden. Something maybe to do with those letters he was writing in Tyrion 1 that he said could win the war. As re-readers, we know it's the Red Wedding. And that when Tywin says they should just do nothing and wait for a better opportunity to present itself, he's not, like, advocating the Taoist principle of inaction like he's Qui-Gon Jinn or something. (laughs) Tyrion is smart enough to realize that there must be a specific better option, but he doesn't have enough information to realize that it's Roose Bolton, and that his price is the wardenship, legitimization for Ramsay, and a bride for Ramsay they can all pretend is a Stark. Yeah, and beyond like the Roose Bolton card, Tywin has plans of his own, as he'll reveal later in the chapter. He's going to send Tyrion and Sansa north to put the north under Lannister control, directly almost. This is wheels within wheels conspiring to use one of George's favorite phrases on Tywin's part, not lifting a finger to take out the Starks and keeping the Ironborn cut out of the new regime. And he's also plotting betrayal of his newly minted co-conspirator in the Red Wedding, Roose Bolton. I, I, as you might know, might have guessed at this point, I hate Tywin Lannister, but this is a genius in a completely cynical and evil way. One thing that strikes me about all of this is that in Tywin's scheme, Half of the realm remains in perpetual warfare for years. More dead Northmen, Ironmen, Rivermen, these are added to the plus column of Tywin's register. So, 
You can admire the cynical genius, even see how smart it is. You can hate it too. But ultimately, I think you should hate it because it's all about the deaths of more people, including thousands, probably tens, hundreds of thousands of innocents. Just a great Simpsons bit I was thinking of where um, they have uh, they have snakes in town. And then it's like the principal's like, oh, we'll get a bunch of gorillas to kill all the snakes. And then we'll get something to kill all the gorillas. <laughs> and that's like, that's all there is really to Tywin's planning. Well, we'll get someone else to fight them. And then we'll get someone else to fight that person. And it's like, there's 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 not much of an end game. I mean, I, I understand he thinks that he might be able to solve this with, with uh, Sansa's kid by Tyrion. But yeah, it's definitely, he's just, just trying to keep ahead of the problems he's causing. That's kind of that's Tywin Lannister's approach. So Tywin then shifts the conversation to Lysa and the Vale. You can imagine him looking down at Westeros, going from bit to bit, like Stannis with his painted table on Dragonstone. And while the North has been an active fighting opponent of the current regime, the Vale has been more of a potential opponent so far. As Tywin says, Lysa is the widow of Jon Arryn, who was conspiring with Stannis before he died, and she is also related to the Starks. The Knights of the Vale really don't like the Lannisters, and are pissed off about Jaime getting the title Warden of the East. Unlike the North, their armies haven't been depleted by war, nor have their plentiful natural resources. But Lysa has neglected to intervene. Mace Terrell has his misogynistic explanation that women have no stomach for violence. His own mother demonstrates otherwise, as does, you know, Cersei, right here in this room. <laughs> the first-time reader has seen Lysa declare that she is afraid of risking her son in war with the Lannisters, that she prefers to hide in isolation from them. Tyrion angrily points out that she had him imprisoned, and almost executed anyway, so he wants to follow up on his plan to reduce the Vale to a wasteland, only now with the Crown's soldiers rather than the clansmen. Mace is a decent enough politician to keep smiling, but Tyrion can sense the scorn when Mace tells him to leave the fighting to fighters. Once again, Mace is a hypocritical prick who nevertheless has a point. It's very unlikely that Tyrion would make it through the Bloody Gates and up the Giant's Lance to get Lysa, even if these lords gave him literally all their men to do so. This is not a sober, well-considered strategy on Tyrion's part. It's a personal vendetta carried out on a colossal scale, and it would result in death, dismemberment, and economic ruin for thousands of people who had nothing whatsoever to do with his unjust imprisonment. There's a reason George has Tyrion compare it to his desire to strangle Cersei. He really is his father's son. And this is Lannister dysfunction at work. Moreover, Tywin has a plan to win the Vale without a fight. Send in Littlefinger, who says he'll marry Lysa and convince her to bend the knee. As usual, Littlefinger delights in being crude when he talks about having sex with Lysa, in contrast to the fake flattery practiced by Varys and the Lords of the Reach. Cersei joins in, calling Lysa a cow, her internalized misogyny hard at work. For Littlefinger, I think it's more about just pushing the envelope of what he can get away with. I think he gets a thrill out of that. Like his response to Tyrion mentioning Jon Arryn's true killer in Clash of Kings when Littlefinger said, True killer, I confess, you make me curious. <laughs> Littlefinger just likes, likes being able to get away with that kind of stuff. And he can get away with this because his brand new shiny title of Lord of Harrenhal makes him a suitable match for the Lady of the Eyrie. We make fun of Littlefinger a lot here on the Nauticast and for good reason. But credit where credit is due. This is one hell of a move. He's enhancing his own power, getting out of King's Landing so the Lannisters can't keep tabs on him, all while seeming to stay in their service. The High Septon supports the plan, as does Kevon, and Tyrion knows that Kevon is only here to speak for Tywin. This was arranged beforehand, he realizes. Politics is performance, after all, and the unofficial pre-meeting is often more crucial than the official meeting. But Tyrion wasn't in on it, and it doesn't seem like the Lords of the Reach were either. 
I love the bit where Mace and Paxter glance at each other as Littlefinger reveals his plan. Like they're just going, uh-oh. They look <laughs> down on guys like him and are only now realizing he's a legit player that they have to take seriously. Uh-oh, indeed. It's like suddenly a light bulb went off in their minds and they see the grandson of a Bravosi rising as Lord of Harrenhal and protector of the Vale. Now, if Mace is thinking hard here, which maybe he is, probably he isn't, he has to see the historical parallel in an up-jumped individual lord putting himself into one of the most powerful positions in Westeros. Mace's own ancestor, Harlan Tyrell, was once a mere steward, as Olena Tyrell said, a servant of the Gardner Kings. But when the Gardner line was extinguished on the Field of Fire at the end of Aegon's conquest, Aegon raised Highgarden steward Harlan up as Lord of Highgarden and Lord Paramount of the South. Now, Littlefinger is doing similarly, rising from service to kings to becoming Lord Protector of the Vale, if his plan works. And it's going to work. Tywin, Kevin, and Littlefinger have all made the arrangements ahead of time. But they also never considered that Littlefinger had his own arrangements ahead of time, too, with Lysa Tully. They never suspected that this was a long part, that this was the conclusion of a long conspiracy that Littlefinger had hatched with Lysa, starting well before the death of John Aaron, but really culminating here, and with a trail of bodies in its wake. Littlefinger understands the interplay between hard and soft power, between material reality and symbols. He can pivot from the seemingly empty title of Lord of Harrenhal to very real political power in the Vale. That dance is also how he's operated as Master of Coin, as we started to learn in Tyrion's chapters in Clash of Kings. And speaking of the Master of Coin, I think my favorite part of Littlefinger's plan is sticking Tyrion with that job while he's gone. It's such a wonderfully petty way of getting back at Tyrion for manipulating him with the whole 1-2-3 thing. I mean, this is technically a promotion from Tyrion's current unemployed status, but it's also <laughs> such a humiliating demotion from acting Hand of the King. The lords of Westeros don't bother with finance. That's grubby and tacky, a job for browbeaten bookkeepers, to borrow Olenna's delightful turn of phrase from the show. So as Littlefinger climbs the ladder, Tyrion falls down it, banging his head on every rung. He used to spend the money, and now he can only count it. Oh, but I think this is even more subtle. There's even more subtlety at work in Littlefinger suggesting Tyrion is master of coin. Now, surely Littlefinger is poking Tyrion in the eye by suggesting his reward as a servant position rather than acting hand of the king, which is what Tyrion was in Clash. But I think there's more at work here. One of the things we covered all the way back in one of our earliest episodes, Game of Thrones Edward Four, is Littlefinger's debt scheme. As Tyrion will note later as Hand of the King, Peter Baelish had not believed in letting gold sit about and grow dusty. That was for certain, but the more Tyrion tried to make sense of his accounts, the more his head hurt. It was all very well to talk of breeding dragons instead of locking them up in the treasury, but some of these ventures smelled worse than weak old fish. As we talked about back in Eddard 4, Littlefinger likely concocted a deferred interest scheme whereby debt was created and then layered with more debt, compounding the interest and the amount of money that the crown owed. But for the moment, the crown's finances are somewhat in order, even with a staggering amount of debt. That debt, of course, created by Littlefinger and worsened by the War of the Five Kings. So what's a gambling man like Littlefinger to do? Why get the fuck out of town? And when the debts are called, it won't be Littlefinger who will be blamed. Oh no, he was up in the Vale bringing Robert Aaron the Vale back to the king's peace. It was Tyrion's fault that the creditors are calling in the crown's debt. It was Tyrion's fault that the crown can't get new loans from banks or merchant houses. 
That, I think, is Littlefinger's ultimate revenge scheme against Tyrion. He becomes a massively powerful lord, while Tyrion reaps the consequences of his intentionally bad stewardship of the realm's finances. All of this while Littlefinger was also likely plotting to frame Tyrion for Joffrey's murder. Penny and Oppo were in Essos at the time, and Littlefinger was probably working to get them to Westeros for Joffrey's wedding with the intent to provoke Tyrion and make him look like a murder suspect. You really get the sense that Littlefinger not only wanted to get Tyrion killed, but by this point, he wanted him to die with incredible dishonor. It's genius. It's cynical. It's evil. It's basically Littlefinger. Littlefinger in a nutshell. And yeah, I love that that the Tyrells and Littlefinger end up kind of just separately framing Tyrion. And he's just, even more than he knows, he's got, he's got so many crimes being, being laid at his doorstep. And yeah, Littlefinger's got to have someone, someone to blame for it. And why not someone that everyone already hates? That'll just make it all the more believable. He doesn't want to try to pin it on a popular person who will have friends sticking up for them. Nope, Tyrion's got no friends left, so he's the perfect patsy. So the next location on the big mental map of Westeros here doesn't wait its turn, but elbows its way to the front, and for good reason. Dorne acts as a disruptive presence within the Lannister-Tyrell coalition, as we see play out in this chapter even before any Dornishmen arrive in King's Landing. So far in the story, the Martells of Sunspear have played a background role, at best. That's about to change, and old wounds will be brought to the light. Mace Tyrell is furious at even the thought that the Dornishmen coming to the capital might be traveling through his lands. As Tyrion thinks, there's literally no reason for them to do that when they can just cross the Boneway and link up with the King's Road in the Stormlands. Sunspear is in the far east of Dorne, after all, and King's Landing is on the eastern side of the continent. So why would dignitaries from Sunspear loop all the way around through the Reach in the West? It really makes no damn sense. But that doesn't matter to Mace. What matters is bad blood. Tyrion mentions both the historical and personal beefs. The former? Wars ranging from raids to conquests between the Reach and Dorne for centuries. The latter? Oberyn Martell crippled Willis Tyrell, Mace's son and heir. Both matter because the historical reinforces and gives context to the personal, It's what turns an isolated incident into part of a pattern. Even though Dorne is now part of the Seven Kingdoms, has been for a while, we know that many noble houses in the Reach haven't forgotten the old way, like what Eris Okart thinks to himself in A Feast for Crows. He was a man of the Reach, and the Dornish were his ancient foes, as the tapestries at Old Oak bore witness. Eris only had to close his eyes to see them still. Lord Edgeron the open-handed, seated in splendor with the heads of a hundred Dornishmen piled round his feet. The three leaves in the prince's pass, pierced by Dornish spears, Alistair sounding his warhorn with his last breath, Sir Olivar the green oak all in white, dying at the side of the young dragon. Dorne is no fit place for any oak heart. Willis's injury inflamed those old grievances for his father. Maybe this is also about Mace avoiding his own guilt, judging from what Oberyn says later. If any were to blame, it was his fool of a father. Willis Tyrell was green as his surcoat and had no business riding in such company. The fat flower thrust him into tourneys at too tender an age, just as he did with the other two. He wanted another Leo Longthorn, and made himself a cripple. Either way, it's a crack in the foundation of the glorious eternal Western alliance. And when Oberyn shows up unexpectedly in person, rather than his patient, prudent, and gouty brother Duran, he does everything he can to break that foundation down. But not because he resents the Tyrells. Oberyn's beef is with the Lannisters, which is where this situation gets even dicier from Tywin's perspective. Tyrion made a deal with Dorne in A Clash of Kings, not even for active military support, just to keep them from joining Renly. To get that much, he had to give up Myrcella, a council seat, and those who spilled Martell blood at the end of Robert's Rebellion. 
Problem is, those were Tywin's men, namely Amory <laughs> Lorch and Gregor Clegane. So Tywin is in the absurd position of enforcing justice against himself, which as we'll see later in the book, he has no intention of doing. This is where Tyrion's bitter, bored POV really shines, because he just gets to sit back and watch everyone else in the room swallow Dad's hypocrisy. Tywin says that Duran Martell is coming to get the justice that Robert denied him. And how would Robert have gotten justice exactly? Maybe doing something about you, Tywin, the guy who presented him with the half Martell baby bodies? Marriage is what's supposed to get everyone past all this, right? Turning these three families into one great house, as Kevon says, via Joffrey and Marcella's weddings. Mace can yell that it's his daughter's wedding, he ought to be in control here, but it's also Tywin's grandson's wedding. So this is a leveling effect designed to cool off the passions of war and replace them with the passion of pumping out heirs and spares. Doesn't work, though. The Tyrells murder Joffrey at his wedding, Cersei turns on Marjorie after Tywin's death, and down in Dorne, Ariane Martell tries to crown Marcella, in part to start a war with the Lannisters. As of the end of A Dance with Dragons, this tripartite alliance is hanging by a thread. Yeah, you know, you, you've referenced uh, Kevin Lannister quote about all being one great house. The one I love from this part of the chapter is, The enmities of the past should remain there. Would you not agree, my lords? So says that fucking war criminal Kevin Lannister. And yet, fast forward to the Oberyn-Gregor duel. Oberyn states the correct theory, in my opinion, that Tywin ordered the Hummers of Ilya and her children as a result of the past. Your father is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to Lord and Lady Tarbeck once, and to the reigns of Castamere, and at King's Landing he taught it to my sister. Elia was murdered because Tywin couldn't let the injustice, in quotation marks, of Rhaegar Targaryen marrying Elia Martell, rather than Cersei Lannister. He couldn't let those things remain in the past. For Tywin, the past should only remain in the past so long as it's convenient for his own plots and schemes. But when it's past lights against the Lion Lord, they have to be rectified. And how does Tywin Lannister always rectify past lights against him? With blood. So now the room's all tense. How do we make everyone happy again? By handing out goodies, of course, that's how you play the game. To make the winners get along, you need some losers to tear apart for scraps. In this case, the losers are everyone who fought for Stannis. It's representative of Westerosi political economy as a whole. This is a pre-industrial agrarian society. Power is rooted in the land. And it's a zero-sum game, because Westeros isn't growing, and you can only share so much. Eventually, if you slice the land too small for your many heirs, each individual square won't be productive enough to support the landlords. So the, really, the only way to redistribute land in a major way is to disinherit the current owners. And civil war provides the perfect opportunity to do that. As we see with the Sworn Sword and the Blackwoods versus the Brackens in A Dance with Dragons, Basically, every lord has demands at the ready, just waiting for a chance. Now there are plenty of orphans and castles, as George writes, for the taking, as a bunch of lords died fighting for Stannis, and a handful more are still with him. In particular, Alistair Florent, one of the most powerful lords of the Reach, or at least he used to be. Now the Tyrells take it all. And that's a big fucking deal, because the Florents have always been the Tyrells' primary rivals for power in the Reach, and now their castle and their lands belong to Garland Tyrell. He's gone from a second son to a mighty lord in his own right. His firstborn will now have a rich inheritance. It's a cadet branch of House Tyrell that will allow Highgarden to flank and further intimidate any other rogue vassals, because you don't want to end up like Alistair Florent, do you? Other lords of the Reach gain other tracts of land, with the notable exception of Paxter Redwine, because his power works differently than the rest. Paxter is a merchant, as well as a noble lord. 
His power is still rooted in the land in that he grows grapes on the arbor, but he doesn't need more land. That's not his highest priority. What Paxter needs is profit. Profit he can then invest in more ships, higher quality produce, bribes to foreign customs officials probably, etc., etc. So what he wants from the government is a big old tax cut. And that's a glimpse of the corporate future right there, folks. That's the world we live in now starting to emerge. Well, of course, when the tax money is going to be wasted by Robert or embezzled by Littlefinger, doesn't Paxter Redwine have a point? You got to starve the beast, right? Right? (laughs) Maybe? No, I'm kidding, obviously. The libertarian cast. I know, right? (laughs) That's right. Then we go from liberal liberal Democrat to the libertarian. I'm I'm kidding, of course. It's clear that Paxter doesn't give a shit about the realm's finances and wasteful government spending. He's only out to enhance his own fortunes. Your point about the zero-sum game, I think, is a really apt one. These men might look like proper lords, but... The reality is that they're feasting crows, just one buck earlier. And when you get right down to it, these are ill-gotten gains. The Reachmen don't care, honestly, about whether Joffrey is the legitimate king or not. They don't care that Joffrey is a bastard born of incest either. They care about what they can profit in terms of lands, money, and status by hitching their wagon to the Lannister cause, for the moment anyways. It is kind of interesting to look at this dynamic of Mace's second son getting Brightwater Keep as a variation of what happened between the Starks and the Karstarks of ye old northern times. Maybe if Garland Terrell survives the war, his descendants will become the the Gyrells? The, Ger- the Gerrells? I don't know. I'm just riffing. Of note is that we don't learn where these lesser tracts of land are granted to the other lesser houses, the Tarleys, Oakharts, and Hightowers. There are a few Reachmen who switched their support from Renly to Stannis and fought for Stannis at the Blackwater. I would guess, and this is not confirmed in the book, so I'm just guessing here, that maybe the lands of the Green and Red Fossaways, the Mullendors, the Varners, and Willems, likely had some of those lands parceled and given to these new Lannister, quote-unquote, loyalists. If so, I do think it's interesting that Tywin is keeping Reacher, Reacher power centered on the Reach, i.e. he's not granting lands to these lords in the Stormlands, Riverlands, or Crownlands. In a way... Tywin is keeping the Reachmen from becoming overmuddy vassals to the crown by expanding their power beyond the borders of the Reach. And in this, Tywin might be trying to check the power of the growing of, of House Tyrell, especially if they were going to get Brightwater and Mace's grandson would sit the Iron Throne. Again, and a lot of this is supposition, of course, but even if so, uh, so I think it's okay supposition. So probably smart politics on Tywin's part. I hate to admit that. I always hate to admit that. Yeah, I know. Sometimes Tywin has uh, some smart ideas, and even more so, so does Varys the Spider. And he's next up to speak, weaving his webs with extra care. The first-time reader doesn't know yet about his plans for Young Grift, but we've already seen him conspiring with Illyrio in Book 1 about Viserys and Daenerys. So, Varys has an interest in deflecting Lannister attention away from the Targaryen Restoration, brewing across the Narrow Sea, until he's ready. But he can't just say nothing about Danny, because that'll look real suspicious when the rumors start trickling in without his help. So instead, Varys frames her journey as a tall tale. The usual sailor's bullshit you have to take with a grain of salt. There's a three-headed dragon in Karth. Varys also makes sure to only mention the dragons after he's mentioned reports of a kraken seen off the fingers. So it all just seems like a useless grab bag of speculation and nonsense that the Lannisters eh, need not care about. Works like a charm. Tywin immediately moves on to the case of his nephew Tyric, who is still missing. And as we've said before, Varys himself is the most likely candidate for the kidnapper, and he deflects, as usual, by fake crying. It's worth noting, though, that Varys' approach can backfire. When Kevon reports that some of the gold cloaks who deserted during the battle have returned to the barracks, Varys suggests sending them to the Wall. After all, there are reports of wildlings on the move. But Mace Tyrell laughs that off, comparing it to the reports of krakens and dragons. 
Varus is now like the eunuch who cried wolf. He's made everything seem like a baseless rumor, so he can't get the lords to take any of it seriously, even when they really should. Yeah, and I think like putting it in the context of Varus and Illyria's plot, I do think this is the rare moment when Varus is trying to do work for the good of the realm, as he constantly says. Doesn't often perform, but here, here, just one time, he might be doing something for the good of the realm. His plans to unseat the Lancers don't really involve the Starks or the North, but he'd rather Aegon probably didn't have to deal with a massive wildling invasion after securing the Iron Throne in the South, especially given the number of casualties that would probably mount after such an endeavor. So send a couple hundred or maybe even a thousand gold cloaks to the Night's Watch. That might hold off the wildlings and prevent Westeros from being engulfed by a massive wildling invasion, which might catch up with Aegon after he takes the Iron Throne. Meanwhile, I think this is more of a present case for why Varus is suggesting this. Varus is able to remove the bad apples from the gold cloaks, and those might cause trouble for those might cause Aegon trouble or run away from the next fight when Aegon might need them. It's a win-win, of course, but Varus's one good deed doesn't get approved by the small council. Boo-hoo, Varus. The one time he's trying to genuinely help out and no one listens. <laughs> Cersei, of course, wants the deserters killed for endangering her sweet, precious little boy Joffrey, despite the fact that it was her pulling Joff back during the battle that led to the mass desertions in the first place. And Tywin's no better. While maybe not as directly bloodthirsty as Cersei, his approach is always rooted in the spectacle of fearsome acts. So he wants the deserters' knees broken as a warning to the rest. And somehow he keeps getting worse. Tyrion thinks back to his time on the Wall with Elsie Mormont, and this is often the source of Tyrion's most sympathetic impulses. He finally follows through on what he promised the old bear, telling Tywin the Watch is under strength and needs more men. But Tywin couldn't possibly care less. He would prefer the Night's Watch to be wiped out and the Wildlings to invade the North, because that would screw over both the Starks and the Greyjoys. For me, this is representative of the overall failure of Tywin's worldview. He's thinking purely about the short-term detriment of his enemies, rather than the long-term benefit of the realm as a whole. Tywin's argument is that the North claims independence, so why should the Iron Throne help them out? Well, because the Iron Throne is claiming that the North is not independent, and that Tywin <laughs> is still legally in charge up there. You're kind of proving the North's point for them, Tywin. If you won't help them out in their moment of need, what is it they're getting out of this relationship? Why should they ever bend the knee to you again? If Tywin's going to claim the title Protector of the Realm, he needs to act like it. Otherwise, he's really just a warlord to whom the North owes nothing. And this is exactly the argument Davos makes to Stannis later in the book. A king protects his people, or he is no king at all. You have to demonstrate what kind of ruler you would be. You have to save the kingdom to be worthy of it. And Stannis listens, which is probably his best moment. He passes the minimum test of governance that Tywin so thoroughly fails here. And again, <laughs> oh, man, can... bare minimum, like showing up when you're invaded. Like that's <laughs> that's the bar. It's a low bar. It's like Maslow's, uh, you know, pirate, uh, hierarchy of needs. Like Stannis yes. is just occupying like the very base level, like protect the people. Done. Wow. The best king of Westeros standing before you right there. But I do think, honestly, that is the, the a great point because Stannis defends the North despite the North not really recognizing his claim to the Iron Throne. Really, the only people that recognize his claim are the Karstarks who plan to betray him, as we find out later in A Dance with Dragons. Tywin, though, sees the North as 
enemies. So again, War of the Dead is to his game. To return to uh, the point I was briefly mentioning earlier, one thing about Timeless Plaza is that it really sounds an awful lot like the proposed theory for why Varas and Illyrio are trying to do with young Griff, get everyone to fight each other, then swoop in with Sansa, Tyrion, and their son or daughter to take it while everyone else is exhausted from war. You were absolutely right when you were saying that this is short-term thinking. War has the power to destroy, and even when that destruction is justified, it's still destruction. This destruction, though, is not justified. Tywin could send the gold cloaks to the wall. Tywin could send half of his army to secure the wall and still have more than enough manpower to conquer the north and the riverlands. But he doesn't. He can't, in his own mind anyways. He wants his enemies to suffer before he sweeps in to finish them off and restore the land under his own banner. In this, Tyrion is an extension of Tywin. So is Cersei, as Tywin will make clear in our final conversation piece in this chapter. Yes, finally George kicks the extras to the curb and zeroes in on House Lannister, the dysfunctional institution at the heart of all the rest. Tyrion, naturally, is pretty pissed off that he just got this new job sprung on him with no warning. Tywin says that he's just doing what Tyrion asked. You wanted important work, but this is clearly bullshit. What Tyrion wanted was recognition for the work he'd already done, not to be handed a pile of Littlefinger's leftovers. And if Tywin was sincerely trying to mend fences with his son, they would have had a private conversation about it first. They would have had the pre-meeting that Tywin clearly had with just Littlefinger. Tywin wanted to surprise Tyrion, to bully him into line. And you can see that in how Tywin tries to neg Tyrion into taking the job. What, you think you're not good enough to count coppers? But Tyrion, as on the question of the Night's Watch, sticks to his better angels here, because he has a point to make. They cannot trust Littlefinger. His family's response show how much better he understands Littlefinger than they do. Cersei points out that he won Highgarden to their side. True, but the alternative was Stannis, who would execute Littlefinger on day one. Tyrion knows that the real reason Cersei trusts Littlefinger is that he sold her Ned Stark. What she doesn't understand is that this was expedience, plus revenge for marrying Catelyn. It was not true loyalty to the Lannisters. Cersei is usually, you know, four lines of coke level paranoid. So why doesn't Littlefinger set off any alarm bells? Well, for the same reason Tywin and Kevon aren't afraid of him because he comes from nothing, or practically nothing. He's a weapon to turn on their enemies, like an intellectual version of the mountain. If he has his own plans, they can't possibly be threatened. They have Casterly Rock, the mountain of gold. But Tyrion knows that Littlefinger, somewhat like the Red Wines, works differently. He doesn't dig gold from the ground. He generates it through investments, and a whole heaping bunch of corruption too. Tywin entrusts Littlefinger with the Vale because the alternative is, well, the Lords of the Vale. Kevon speaks for his brother when he calls them dangerous and proud, not the kind of people they want to elevate. Littlefinger will bring the Vale into the fold, but the lords won't accept him long term, keeping them all busy fighting each other, and that way the Lannisters win, or so they think. What they have overlooked is that they have put Littlefinger literally above all the lords of the Vale. And we see how this plays out in Feast for Crows. They hate his ass, they want him gone, but it does not matter, because he has Sweet Robin, and having control of the Aaron is really what counts in the Vale at the end of the day. That's how Lysa keeps getting away with her bullshit up there. The lords were ready to go to war with Rob, but she wasn't, and she has the Aaron. In the meantime, Littlefinger serves interests that overlap with his own. He dealt with the Tyrells in the Reach, he negotiated with them on, you know, reasonably good faith, but tells the Lannisters about the secret Tyrell plot to marry Sansa to Willis, so that Sansa stays in Littlefinger's orbit. And this is the second half of the invisible game we talked about in Sansa 2. The intelligence chain reaching from Sansa to Serdantos to Littlefinger. This gives the Lannisters a temporary advantage. 
If the Lannisters had been put on the spot by the Tyrells asking for Sansa to come visit Highgarden, they would have had to agree. Cersei would have refused, she says, because Cersei loves pissing people off just as much as she does tormenting Sansa. She's a tyrant at heart. And Tyrion patiently has to point out the realities of governing within a coalition during a civil war. If they piss off the Tyrells, they run the risk of driving them into Rob's arms instead. That Tywin takes this possibility seriously is a sign of how dangerous Rob remains, even after the Blackwater made things much worse for him. Rob is usually talked about as a military threat, but he's a political threat as well, giving anyone still unhappy with the status quo a potential out. So instead, the Lannisters have to use subterfuge, and quickly, before the Tyrells ask. Tywin proposes a double marriage, swapping his kids in to complete the set. Tyrion will marry Sansa, and Cersei will marry, in all likelihood, Willis Tyrell. It's interesting how differently the kids react. In the show, both of them are horrified and beg their father to reconsider, and there's some really terrific acting by all three there. In the books, only Cersei is shocked and appalled, whereas Tyrion is, like, at worst, a little uneasy about this. Mostly he's just sick of his dad's bullshit. And I think this pretty clearly breaks down on gender lines. In Cersei's last marriage, she was beaten and raped. She struck back against Robert and has been holding her head high ever since. Now she's being reminded that she can call herself Queen Regent until she's blue in the face. It doesn't stop her father from wielding authority over her body. Women gain power through men in this world. And that's worked out for Olenna, the Queen of Thorns, but it's not working out for Cersei anymore. And while Kevon mutters some polite words about how young and fair she still is, surely you don't want to be alone forever, Tywin does not even indulge in the pretense that this is about Cersei's well-being. The language emphasizes the violence of control. Cersei's cheek reddens like she's been slapped, George writes, like how Robert slapped her. He writes, George writes that Tywin's eyes seem to pin Cersei to her chair, like she's an insect under glass, or a meal under Tywin's fork. She is meat, a resource to be used. And there's an emotional dynamic at work here, I think, that goes beyond Tywin's just general ruthlessness. This is also about the twincest. This scene is as close as Tywin ever gets to admitting the truth, that his precious golden twins have been fucking for years, and that he, Tywin, has been fighting a war to keep their wretched spawn on the Iron Throne. He redirects his rage at Stannis, calling the accusation disgusting slander, saying that Cersei's new kids will prove Stannis a liar. But I think Tywin's attitude hints that he thinks Cersei is the disgusting liar here, and while he can't politically afford to ever say it out loud, he is furious that she and Jaime have put him in this position. Far as Tywin's concerned, Cersei owes him. It's a brutal reminder for Cersei that within the power structure, she is, as she puts it, a broodmare. Her job is not to govern, it's to bear children. And I can't help but sympathize, despite what a manifestly unfit ruler she is. And I think George uses Tyrion's POV to guide us in that regard. On the one hand, Tyrion is munching popcorn as Tywin tears Cersei down. Oh, he loves this song. It's the closest he can get to having his revenge on the sister who's always treated him like shit. The sister who kidnapped Alayaya and, Tyrion thinks, tried to have him killed during the battle. Tyrion's just laughing on the inside at the image of Cersei packed off to the Iron Islands of all places, off to Pike, a miserable, uncomfortable rock that would further break her pride. Knowing his sister as well as he does, Tyrion knows that Willis would be a terrible match for her in terms of temperament, and he finds that funny too. On the other hand, Tyrion has been on the receiving end of his father's scorn so often that he also feels bad for Cersei in this moment. As he says, part of him is laughing, part of him is weeping. 
Same as his two heads during his dream of battle in A Dance with Dragons. One was laughing, one was crying. It's the comedy and tragedy masks, a.k.a. the human heart in conflict with itself. You are the queen, Tyrion thinks as she begs father's leave to go. He ought to be begging your leave. It's so sad that just for a moment, Tyrion realizes that he and Cersei could be allies against their father's manipulations. But, as Tyrion thinks, what could he even say in her defense? That she wants to fuck Jaime, and that Jaime might kill Cersei's new husband? That's not exactly going to endear him to dad. So Tyrion just stays quiet and waits for his turn. I really love the point you're making about Tommen basically admitting that Stannis is right, because I, I never saw that before in this chapter, but I, but I see it now. Somewhere submerged deep in Tywin's consciousness is his realization that Stannis's letter is true, and that Cersei and Jamie have been fucking all along, and that the children that they that that Cersei has are the product of that incest. And yeah, I think that's been a, a fandom debate for years about whether Tywin knows about this or whether he is kind of self-consciously deluding himself. I think this chapter speaks to the idea that he does actually know at some level that what has been said about his daughter and son are true. I, I think there's, when you talk about the politics of this moment too, about Cersei marrying Willis, there is a devious reason, even more devious reason you want to call it that, for Tywin's scheme to marry Cersei to Willis. It's kind of an instrument to undercut the Tyrells. Sure, they're one house, but so far, it's only the Tyrells who have been able to knock down a wall to get into Tywin's house via Marjorie and Joffrey. Now, Tywin plans to knock down one of the Tyrell walls to get the Lancers into the Tyrell duplex. This is an analogy confusing. Anyone else besides me? I don't know. It's quite fascinating here, the political impulse at work in Cersei marrying Willis. With Garland Tyrell named Lord of Brightwater Keep, he wouldn't have a strong claim on Highgarden. Meanwhile, Loras is now in the Kingsguard, and he can't inherit or marry, or marry either. So Tywin politically isolates Willis Tyrell as the sole heir to Highgarden and thinks he can slip Cersei in to extend Lancer dominance in the Reach. Brightwater Keep and the Kingsguard might seem like rewards for Garland and Loras, respectively, but much like Euron's gifts, I think Tywin's gifts are poisoned here. It's not unthinkable that Cersei might be past childbearing age with Willis Tyrell. She might never bear children again. Who then inherits Highgarden with Garland and Brightwater, Loras and the Mar Loras and the Kingsguard, and Marjorie's queen? Maybe a Lannister inherits. Maybe Willis Tyrell dies while Cersei lives on, and Cersei becomes and Cersei becomes Lady of Highgarden. And just like that, the Lannisters now would control two of the largest, most powerful castles in Westeros and hold the paramountcy and wardenship of the Reach and the Westerlands and the South. But even if Cersei and Willis have children, you get the sense that Tywin kind of has the same mindset that Olenna ascribed to Mace about why he wanted Marjorie to marry Renly and then Joffrey. The thought that one day he might see his grandson with his arse on the Iron Throne makes Mace puff up like a, well, like a puffish as, uh, as Marjorie completes. The thought that a grandson of Tywin's could become Lord Tyrell makes Tywin puff up like a puffish too. But that is not the only castle, paramountcy, and wardenship that Tywin has his sights set on. Oh no, he has northern, what it, northern, he has northern ambitions too. Yes, he does, and he has to leverage Tyrion to make that work. And Tywin's hypocrisy is again in full flower here, as he declares that Tyrion visiting sex workers is a weakness in him. Like Tywin doesn't do the exact same thing. Even worse is him saying that it's past time Tyrion was wed, skipping right over Tysha and the hell Tywin put her through for daring to love a Lannister. But as much as Tyrion still hates Tywin for that, you know, and will in part kill him for it, he's more focused now on the logistics of getting married. Tyrion is beginning to realize that he has no long-term position within the Lannister coalition, leaving him permanently vulnerable to Cersei. 
and to Joffrey, which is potentially even worse when the king comes of age. So maybe Tyrion should get out while the getting's good. Set himself up somewhere distant, just let his family forget about him for a while. Really, the obstacle for Tyrion isn't the memory of Tysha. It's the present reality of Shay. That's one reason why he tries to weasel out of this. The other reason is that Tyrion is uneasy about how young and innocent Sansa is with her head full of dreams. Not enough to stop him from being into her when they get married, to be clear, just enough to know that he really shouldn't be into her. And Tywin steamrolls over even those mild objections. Is it cruel to deliver Sansa from Joffrey only to make her marry Tyrion? Who cares? This isn't about Sansa's happiness to Tywin. It's about ensuring a male Stark heir to take over Winterfell, like you were saying earlier, and also probably about checking Tyrion's future off of Tywin's to-do list. Tyrion's political instincts kick in here, and he tries to follow his father's plans to their roots. Well, why not engage him to Asha Greyjoy? Because the Ironborn aren't serious in Tywin's eyes. The North is ultimately going to prefer a Stark. But wait, what about Rob? He'll soon have kids that will outrank Sansa's. After all, he's engaged to a fray, right? And now Tywin drops the bomb. Rob got married to Jane Westerling instead. As cynical as Tyrion has become, even he is taken aback by the news that Rob did this. And I think it's funny how Ty Tyrion and Kevon are shocked for different reasons. Kevon just blusters on about how unorthodox this is to marry a girl of such doubtful birth whose great-grandfather was a common salesman. <laughs> as you were saying about the Tyrells, all the noble families have scrappier ancestors if you go back far enough. They're not literal gods, after all. They had to start somewhere. I mean, take the Lancers, for example. As the story goes, Lan the Clever literally deceived Garth Greenhands into thinking that he was the true-born son of Garth in order to take some of his inheritance before playing a spook. I'm, I'm, this is the story. And scaring the Castleys out of Castle Rock. So really, these kind of not-so-noble origins that Kevin is becoming like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that they would be possible that Rob Stark would marry the great-granddaughter of a common beige and a grandson, a granddaughter of a, of, a, of a salesman. That is just obscene. Whereas, of course, as the story goes, Land the Clever and the Lancers descend from uh, not-so-noble origins as well. It just all takes time. Kevon mentions Davos in passing. That smuggler Stannis keeps. It's almost as bad as that. That is an example of this kind of unnatural mixing with the pores. But as Davos himself thought, hey, give it a couple generations, and my descendants will be intermarrying with the Valerians of cherished ancestry. Tyrion himself married a lowborn woman, so he knows that class is no barrier to love. More of a cage that forms around love. Tyrion's confusion has less to do with Jane's mother's side of things, and more to do with the fathers. The Westerlings are proud, but poor. They don't bring much to Rob's campaign. Their castle is a ruin, Tyrion thinks. But hey, a romantic ruin. Which sums up his perspective on love these days. Power takes it all away from you. The only romantic thing is the ruin left behind. And the news of Rob seems to reinforce that worldview for him. Rob lost the phrase for Jane's honor. And Tyrion thinks Jane would have been better off anyway with a bastard in her belly than with her whole family betraying Tywin. Tyrion knows how his father operates. He's seen the violence meted out on both a personal and political level. Far as he's concerned, Rob has just put his blushing bride in the firing line. But strangely, Tywin doesn't seem angry at all. And none of this makes sense to Tyrion. Have both his father and the Westerlings forgotten who Tywin Lannister is? Have they forgotten the reigns of Castamere? Surely they can't think Rob will win the war now. And I love how George sets this up. He's basically spelling out the Red Wedding at this point, while preserving plausible deniability so the audience will still be surprised. 
you know, it, it feels somewhat cheeky among all the awesome analysis that you're doing to mention that this is that towards the end of this chapter, this is our actual first mention of the reigns of Casimir, the song yeah. in A Song of Ice and Fire. I was actually surprised about this as well, because I think a lot of my, my memory has been colored by the show because the show had the song being sung by, by the national at the end of season two's the season two's Blackwater. But here is actually the first mention of, of the song itself, and it couldn't have come at a more appropriate time. It happens right as we start to see more hints of Tywin's true plans at work. Tywin Lannister ruled the Westerlands through fear. Fear in both his actions, fear in his songs. He's controlled the narrative of the Westerlands and infected even the culture with his presence. And the reigns of Castamere are, you know, I, I said, I wrote here in the notes, are about to seep into places further than the Westerlands. But I think a more apt comparison would be about, would be something like the notes of the reigns of Castamere are about to be played in places beyond the Westerlands, beyond Lord Farman's beyond Lord Farman's castle, beyond the, the ruined castle of the Reigns of the Tarmac, on into the Riverlands and beyond. Yep, the trap is closing. As we learn later, of course, the Westerlings aren't afraid of suffering the fate of the Reigns and the Tarbex because Tywin cut them in on his plans for Rob. Tywin isn't angry about the betrayal because there is no betrayal. And in fact, everything is proceeding according to his plans. So instead of scowling like usual, Tywin threatens to smile, which is somehow way more terrifying than a scowl ever could have been. We have been reminded throughout this chapter what a tight-fisted, ruthless bastard Tywin is, how thoroughly he oversees his empire, and how little he cares about the human beings caught up in his machine. So it's haunting that this chapter ends with him on the verge of smiling. Tywin's a lion, after all, and he's only smiling to show off his teeth. Mm, that's so well said. You know, it's uh, I was thinking about the comparisons between Tywin and Stannis we've been pointing out in, in the Nauticast podcast. And Stannis, for his part, smiles for real once in a long while and even laughs, too, at, at least three times. And I'm kind of reminded <laughs> of that that moment from uh, from the World of Ice and Fire 2 where Pycelle is writing to, to Maester Yandel and says, oh, I've seen Tywin smile at least three times in total. And his smiles are reserved for his wife. But here there's no smiles because all of that love and warmth that he had from Joanna Lannister has been replaced by an avarice and replaced by a cruelty which exceeds well beyond the regular norms of the lordly class in Westeros and is going to really see its fulfillment as we get closer and closer to the Red Wedding. Oh, yeah, so good. This chapter is so crucial to the Red Wedding on reread. Another thing it has in common with Catelyn, too. George is, is really doing the work. So he can, he can just kind of slip us into the atmosphere with all the plot book done. Mm -hmm. So, moving into a foreshadowing and groundwork, the, uh, the Lannisters do mention here that the plan is for after Rob leaves to the north to send in David Lannister, their cousin, along with Sir Forley Prester, to lay siege to River Run. And that is something we play, we see play out in Jamie's A Feast for Crows chapters. Just a little difference that there's the whole red wedding thing in between, which kind of kind of <laughs> colors that whole event. But George has this in his back pocket, and I think does a really good job of showing us that siege in A Feast for Crows. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this one in Catelyn too. There are consequences for Rob Stark going north to try and liberate his homeland. He is leaving the West, the Riverlands open to invasion again. And sure enough, Tywin is already anticipating Rob's move and, and plotting to send in soldiers to uh, to take back the Riverlands for the crown in quotation marks. And and I do think it's it's you know these these two characters. Are Davin at least is one of the the more interesting minor characters in a feast for Crows, and I'm excited about getting to him. And Forley Prester, though, has been mentioned oftentimes as a potential wins the winner prologue point of view character. So we could likely see more of the the Lannister machinations and more of what the Westerlands have been doing politically and what some of the underlings have been experiencing under Tywin's rule. So I'm excited about seeing more of these two characters in in the Winds of Winter. Agreed. Another thing set up here is, of course, Littlefinger getting married to Lysa. 
in the veil. And then, of course, that does happen later in the book, although the happy matrimony doesn't last very long. They get married in one Sansa chapter, and in the very next Sansa chapter, <laughs> Littlefinger throws his wife off the mountain. I, I, you know, I'm going to have this question for you when you get to those those later chapters in A Storm of Swords. Do you, do you think that Littlefinger always planned to murder Lysa? Was that always in the cards for, for Littlefinger to kind of knock her off? I mean, not, not out the moon door, maybe, but like poison her, maybe, as, he, as he's seemingly doing with, uh, with Sweet Robin in Feast and, and Winds? That's a good bet. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think Littlefinger always had the plan to kill Lysa, in part just because I think Sansa's his ultimate cherished romantic goal but also she just knows too much as she reveals in that storm of swords chapter when she just starts <laughs> sobbing the entire plan out when sansa and marillion are standing right there so clearly little finger improved in terms of throwing her at the moon door and framing marillion specifically but yeah poison is a good bet and uh, this is total speculation but i want maybe the original plan was to somehow like frame lysa for killing sweet robin like to make it Ooh. seem like lysa had just gone crazy and killed her son and herself like maybe 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 that was the the long term plan, but of course we'll never know because she uh, she unthinkingly moved up her own death date. It's a very haunting scene. Yes, it is one of the most haunting, horrifying scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire. Something I'm really looking forward to getting to. I don't know why I have these two conflicting feelings in my own in my own heart. Uh, this guy, this is very minor, but uh, in, in this chapter, it's mentioned that the Dornishmen are reported to be coming to King's Landing with 300 spears in their number, which is actually the same number that Lady Nymeria Sands that Lady Nymeria Sand takes with her up to King's Landing, as reported in the Winds Winter Ariane chapter. Of course, I think they're both going with uh, that same number of, of spears for the same reason. They are planning for violence to occur in King's Landing. Oberon, of course, is planning that uh, as he wants to get vengeance for Ilya Martell. And of course, Lady Nymeria Sand plans to get vengeance for Oberon Martell with her own spears and her own plots as she gets into King's Landing come probably early mid part of the Winds of Winter. Right. Ironically, it's, a, it's almost foreshadowing that pays off later when she, uh, she, she comes in force. And yeah, the, the sand snakes are likely to be even even less restrained than Oberyn was in, in their machinations <laughs> in King's Landing. That's a, that's fun shit for sure. So uh, one final bit of foreshadowing and groundwork. We were talking earlier about Garland being given Brightwater Keep, the Florent Lands, and that is his next move after the Purple Wedding. Garland returns to the Reach to try and make good on that claim. Unfortunately for him, Euron's invasion kind of takes precedence. So last we've heard of Garland Tyrell, he is gathering men together with Willis at Highgarden to deal with Euron. I, I would bet that being the official Lord of Brightwater Keep doesn't hurt those efforts, but really, with the Reach facing down an invasion, I think any anyone in charge is good for them at this point. It's really interesting because in Feast, it's mentioned that Garland Terrell takes half of the Terrell army back with him to the Reach from King's Landing. And here, I think we're starting to see George kind of like start to play with the plot in terms of like plotting it towards Aegon landing in Westeros and being successful, at least initially in his conquest of the Stormlands, the Crownlands, and likely King's Landing as well. So having half of the Tyrell army back with Garland Tyrell to besiege Brightwater Keep and then face down the Ironborn allows for, you know, Mace to be a little bit under strength than he was, at least when he came to King's Landing, when, he, when Tyrion's going to estimate later that they have sixty to 70,000 swords at, at hand. And, you know... This is just a minor note. There's there's a character that's holding Brightwater Keep for the Florence. This guy named Colin Florent, mm -hmm. and I've always been really curious about this guy. Like you know, for a lot of these like evil coded or villain villain coded houses or, or factions in, in in a Song of Ice and Fire, there's usually like just like one person who's like, oh. This guy is actually okay. None of the Florence are really like that in Stannis' camp. So I wonder whether Colin Florence is going to operate as that kind of Domeric Bolton slash, you know, Davin Lannister role in, in the, the Winds of Winter. And, and I don't know if we're ever going to see this guy, obviously. But I, I am curious about this guy that he continues to hold out despite all odds uh, for Stannis in Brightwater Keep, surrounded by enemies on all sides and a massive army that Garland Terrell shows up. Really, 
I think, you know, in Colin's mind, Euron, Euron is probably the ultimate hero of A Song of Ice and Fire. Right, saving him, just like I was talking about last week, how really the others actually saved Sam from being killed by Chet. So clearly the yeah. others are the good guys here. They saved heroic <laughs> Sam Tarly. Really, he was oh, just very indeed. ungrateful killing one of the others later. Sam has been the villain this whole time. <laughs> but uh, so uh, speaking of the Reach, that's going to take us into our uh, theory and discussion portion for the episode because this chapter provides a lot of the meat, a lot of the protein for something people have been speculating about for a while and, and no one has done it better than you. So I wanted, thought we would talk a little bit here about... Uh, some, something that might be happening with the lords that show up in this council scene. Yeah. So yeah, as you as you might know, back in the day, I, I wrote this 37-part series known as Blood of the Conqueror. And, you know, I, I figured it'd be fun to revisit this this theory that I was writing about back in the day. And, and, and to be perfectly clear, I was not the first person to come up with the, the, these ideas that I'm going to explain below. Um, but it is something that, I, that I've, I've thought a lot about in, in the years since the publication of Dance of Dragons and obviously since my reading of the books. And so it'd be fun to revisit that here because, you know, there is this whole thing about young Griff's friends in the Reach and lots of people who are waiting for the winds of winter are being like, ooh, who is the mystery of who these young, who young Griff's friends in the Reach are? And the, friend, the phrase comes from John Connington's first point of view chapter, The Lost Lord, at the Golden Company Corral outside of Volantis, where young Griff declares that they're going to go to Westeros. Captain General Harry Strickland begins raising objections, which are answered by his men. And then he brings up the issue of the Lannisters and Tyrells by saying, a Lannister woman insists to the Captain General, the bitch will have the Kingslayer at her side. Count on that. And they'll have all the wealth of Cassidy Rock behind them. And Illyrio says, this boy king is betrothed to the Tyrell girl, which means we must face the power of High Garden as well. Then one of Harry Strickland's sellsword subordinate commanders, Laswell Peak, puts in an idea about who truly holds the power of the Reach in High Garden. Even after a century, some of us still have friends in the Reach. The power of High Garden may not be what Mace Tyrell imagines. Now, I think it's important to note here that Laswell Peak might be and probably is full of shit. As a potential member of House Peak, and I say potential because as we find out in dance, sellswords can choose their own surnames. What does this dude really know of the politics of the Reach? Remember what he's likely referring to in this statement are the traditional Reacher houses who support the Blackfires, especially in the first Blackfire Rebellion. And those houses are House Peak, House Osgrave, House Ambrose, House Ball, and House Custain. Additionally, houses Oakhart and Hightower ostensibly potentially supported both sides during the first Blackfire during the first Blackfire Rebellion. The point I'm driving at here is that among the known Reacher houses who support the Blackfires, the friends that Laswell Peak is likely referring to, you probably don't recognize most of the houses unless you're you're familiar with the Duncan Egg story stories. And that's because they're either very minor in the story or exist as small houses by the start of the main story. Ultimately, I think Laswell Peak has an idealistic vision, to put it kindly, of houses who will rise up from the Reach who supported the Blackfires previously. Because who in Westeros gives a shit about the Blackfires in the year 301 AC by the time A Dance of Dragons is unfolding? But that's not to say that young Grift won't find sympathetic friends in the Reach. Just probably not the friends that Laswell Peak and that just not the friends that Laswell Peak imagines. And these friends will rise for young Grift for their own reasons rather than any historical allegiance to the Blackfires. And two of the most prominent lords who might support Young Grift receive their reasons for supporting the Pretender in this very chapter. And we start first with Lord Mathis Rowan, because in this chapter we get these lines of dialogue by Tywin and Tyrion's observations. Prince Doran comes to my son's command, Lord Tywin said, and not only to join our celebration, but to claim his seat on the council and the justice Robert denied him for the murder of, the, of his sister Elia and her children. So Tyrion makes his observations of what everyone is thinking, and then he notes, Redwine does not give a fig, he thought, but Rowan looks fit to gag. 
Rowan looks fit to gag as an interesting reaction because Mathis Rowan is outraged at the murder of Elia Martell and her children. And his outrage is in how brazen Tywin is acting about the deaths of Elia Martell and her children, and her children Rhaenys and Aegon. Historically, Mathis Rowan was an ostensible Targaryen loyalist, serving alongside of Mace Tyrell during the Siege of Storms and during Robert's Rebellion. There's a potential implication that, Ma- that Ma- Mathis Rome was not merely following his liege lord into war and may have actually been a true Targaryen loyalist. But it, regardless of whether Mathis was a true Targ believer, when it's time for the reach lords to receive their lords, receive their, receive their rewards, there's this note. Lesser tracts were granted Lord Brougham and set aside for Lord Tarly, Lord Oakhart, Lord Hightower, and other worthies not present. Mace Tyrell, of course, reaped the best rewards for himself by having Garland Tyrell named Lord of Brightwater Keep, something I'll get back to, but the other lords didn't get as good rewards as the others. Though it's not clear that Mathis is upset by this, it is notable that Mace gets the lion's share and, and Mathis gets the leavings. I, I think this is likely going to culminate for Mathis Rowan switching sides to Aegon in the Winds of Winter. As stated in the A World of Ice and Fire entry on Mathis Rowan, when Mace Tyrell turns a rounded heads back to King's Landing in a feast for crows, he ends up leaving Mathis Rowan in charge of a token force to keep Storm's End, to keep Stannis' garrison at Storm's End under siege. And one should know it, but in John Kyneton's next chapter, that is the Griffin Reborn, his next move is to take Storm's End, and Aegon declares at the end of the Griffin Reborn that he will lead the attack. Imagine Mathis's pleasant Surprise? When the son of Rhaegar Targaryen appears over the walls of storms and is presented to Mathis Rowan outside the castle itself. Moreover, the plan, as has been set, has been demonstrated, moreover, the plan has been theorized is to present Aegon not as a black dragon claimant to the Iron Throne, but rather as a red dragon, the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Elia Martell. So for a possible Targaryen loyalist like Mathis Rowan, this deception will likely lead him to swearing for Aegon. And, and I think this moment in A Storm of Swords, Tyrion Three, no matter how small it might seem, serves as potent foreshadowing for Mathis to turn on Mace Tyrell and the Lannisters and declare for Aegon. And then there's someone who will likely join for Aegon for rather less noble reasons, and that is Lord Randall Tarly, who is an enormous dick, and his reasons for joining up with Aegon are far less noble and much more grounded in perceived and actual slights and thefts of land by Mace Tyrell. As this chapter makes clear, Mace Tyrell has gone around claiming to have defeated Robert Baratheon at the Battle of Ashford, when the reality is that Randall Tarly's vanguard won the, ba- won the battle before Mace Tyrell even showed up. So far as we know, Randall hasn't actually voiced any discontent over Mace, Mace Tyrell's valor theft, but I do kind of find it hard to believe that the guy who treated Samuel so badly because Sam failed to live up to his toxic martial masculinity would not be steaming for years over Mace Tyrell bragging about winning the Battle of Ashford. But this chapter also details the spoils of war for the Reacher Lords, and we find out how Mace plans to reward his son Garland. Lord Tywin was pleased to oblige. Brightwater Keep and all its lands and incomes were granted to Lord Tyrell's second son, Sir Garland, transforming him into a great lord in the blink of an eye. Now, that seems fairly inconsequential at first glance, but there's something that Tyrion fails to note here. Though all of the Florence have been attainted due to their treason, there is one Florin who has not been attainted and who, and who should inherit the castle, and that person is Lady Melissa Florin. She's not attainted because she's actually married to, drumroll please, da 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 Randall Tarley. So, by rights, Lady Melissa Florin should become the Lady of Brightwater Keep. Or, in other words, Randall Tarley should rule Brightwater Keep through his wife and pass the castle on to one of his heirs through Melissa. And yet, Mace gets Tywin to grant the castle to Garland Tyrell, depriving Randall of what is his through marriage to Melissa Florin. And to tie it all together, this is decided while Randall Tarly is not present in King's Landing. 
Remember the start of this chapter? Randall's off in the Crownlands having just fought a bloody battle against Robert Glover and Helmut Tallhart. So this guy is being fucked over by his by his overlord and also out there fighting for his overlord and really risking his life and skin in order to satisfy his lord while his overlord, Mace Terrell, takes the best castle for himself. On the meta side of things, we know that George came up with the Black Fires between Clash and Storm, and I think we're seeing George seeding the ground for Aegon's rise in the Winds of Winter. With the Rowans and Tarleys at his side, alongside of the Dornish, the Sparrows, and potentially others, Aegon stands a chance at defeating the Tyrell-Lannister alliance and sitting the Iron Throne for, like, you know, five, six, maybe even seven minutes before Daenerys Targaryen arrives. So even if Laz Wilpeak doesn't have any real friends in the Reach in the traditional Blackfire sense of the word, he will end up having new friends in the Reach in the form of the Rowans and the Tarleys. So again, it's one of those like political theories. That I feel like it's been kind of beaten to death at this point, but it's still one I like to think about every once in a while. And I think you do such a great job of describing it that it's not just the old Blackfire loyalties, which is kind of what you think about when you hear what Laswell Peak says in Dance, that these are the, you know, it's like what uh, Illyrio tells Viserys about the small folk who were sewing your dragon banners and just waiting <laughs> eagerly for your return. That's, you know, people have their interests and sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. It's more like how, how Littlefinger operates. Or it's more, as I was thinking, it's like how Tyrion and Tywin point out that the Tyrells always have the potential to jump ship to Rob. Not because they love Rob, have some ancient history with the Starks that they're drawing on, but just because it might be expedient that the Lannisters aren't serving their interests. And the same thing happens here with the, these Lords of the Reach, that they they have these pre-existing grievances, they have these things they want that aren't being met, and that uh, what what Young Grift and the Golden Company would offer is just a vessel for that. Because, you know, what Tywin is trying to do right now at this stage of the war is cut off other options. Make it so everyone in Westeros just has to deal with us, no matter how bad we get, or even if they don't like us, we have to make it so it doesn't matter. We've already kind of done that with Stannis. We've made him look like a political dead letter. we got to do that next with Rob. But these, these, you still have the Targaryens hanging there as, as this option. And yes, I 100% think that's that's the direction that George is going to take. And that will be how, kind of how he removes the, the Tyrells from the game board and gives young Grift an army he can fuck with. If only, as you say, only for a little while before D- Danny shows up with something that can cut through his armies, namely three full-grown dragons. I'm, I'm sorry, did you say so that he can have an army that Aegon can fuck with? Yes. Because I think that's amazing. <laughs> that is an amazing <laughs> phrase. That's all he needs. That's how he'd think about it. Ooh, an army I can fuck with. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all awesome. he needs. Uh, I'm, I'm going to remember that from here on out about the about when, when the Winds Winter comes out in a week or two about uh, Aegon's <laughs> army that he can fuck with. That's um, outstanding. Yeah, it, it's obviously the, the loyalty of these lords is, is not so ironclad as, as they make it out to seem and as they boast about. And the fact that it's not so no, I, the fact that it's not so ironclad makes for some compelling storytelling when it comes to lords switching sides. And hey, the Romans and Tarleys at this point have already switched sides twice. Why not a third time? Come on, guys. Three, what's three times, third time's a charm on to Aegon before Daenerys Targaryen, of course, shows up. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Tyrion 3. Again, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have the chance, please rate review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where we have early access for our patrons, multiple bonus episodes per month, lots of other great benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com, and you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, 
Septon Maribald the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjigat, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bolinda Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle of Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Narco-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetose Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Yeah, thank you both so much. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Catlin 3 in which the good times just keep on rolling for the Starks at River Run. Or ahead rolls. I think, I think it's the latter, if I'm remembering this chapter correctly. Yeah, I think it's the latter. What a grim, tragic chapter full of murder and sadness and death. I can't wait. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Get those two parallel thoughts we have. Like, exactly. To these, these things like, oh, it's so horrifying. I can't believe that. Cannot wait to get to that next week. Wait for all the dread and despair. But yeah, beautifully written Catalan chapter. One of, one of her best. And that's, of course, a very high standard. But yeah, good times. Always has good times with you, sir. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords Catlin 